humans. How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 219, and I had a conversation with Mike Disa. He's an animator, writer, and director. You will know his work. Fantasia 2000, Tarzan, Mulan, Hercules, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Treasure Planet, Atlantis Lost Empire. You're getting the idea, I'm sure. Uh, Wacky Races, Aftermath, Dante's Inferno, and also he worked on Rob Zombie's The Haunted World of El Superbisto. I have not seen that, but you bet your butt I'm going to go watch that. You know, I interviewed Mike and was going to be putting out his episode last week. And he posted, a day before I was going to do the put out the episode, he posted this thing on Facebook and he was recounting his life in this post and all the things, all of his experiences and who he was and where he'd been and that kind of thing. And I was reading through it and I thought, my God, we didn't talk about any of this stuff. I had no idea. And I reached out to him and I said, what gives? You didn't mention any of this stuff. I had, I didn't know. It wasn't on Google anywhere when I looked you up or, or any of that. And he said, uh, yeah, I don't, I didn't, this is the first time I've ever talked about it. It's just, it's not something I really talk about. So that to me was very intriguing. And I asked him if he would be willing to let me interview him again. And he kindly said, yes, that is what this episode is. It is that redo that that we did. So very excited about that. Also, uh, I've been talking uh, the last few weeks in the preamble about Sentinel's Point of No Return, the serial podcast that I was involved in. Mike is the writer and director of that sci-fi story. It's, and what an experience. I had such a blast being being a part of that. Yeah, so I was really interested in digging into more of Mike's past since he was willing to talk about it. <laughs> I think I, I strong-armed him a little bit, but he was really gracious and, and lovely about sharing stories. He did, he, he did a, tell a couple tales that uh, he called me up the next day and he said, you know, uh, maybe let's not, let's not have that in there. And so I agreed. Uh, <laughs> we don't want to get him into trouble or anything. Uh, so we, we 86'd one of the stories. But that being said, this guy is really a top, tip top, top guy in his field and just a lovely person. So I'm, I'm looking forward to you hearing this, this episode. General news and noteworthies social media, Hey Human Podcast, is on Facebook and Instagram. And then my personal Susan Ruthism is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And when you listen to Sentinel's Point of No Return, as I'm sure you will, please rate and review that as well. Uh, that, as Mike mentions during this episode, that's important. It really is helpful. If you'd like to see other things I do besides the podcast, check out SusanRuth.com. You can also sign up for the mailing list there. Very exciting. If you like mailing list participations, there is your spot to sign up. Mike mentions a philosopher from the Middle Ages 
he could not remember the name at the time. And I texted him and said, hey, do you, did you figure out who that person was you were talking about in the episode? And he sent me back the name Bothius. I don't know if I'm saying that right. B-O-E-T-H-I-U-S. And the Consolation of Philosophy. So I'll put that on the links page along with all the other things that I think would be cool from this conversation. The links page, of course, is on heyhumanpodcast.com. And there is a whole lot of information for every episode that I do. Please check that out. I think that's it. Let's uh, get into this. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, please spread the word. Tell your friends and family and all the folks you know. Tweet about it. Text about it. Instagram. Facebook. All the things. Get the word out. Thank you. All right. Here we go. What are you working on? Oh, oh, okay. I thought for some reason I thought you'd already done all the episodes and it was all. No, it's it's an unbelievable amount of work to do each one. So basically, you know, if I start on Thursday, I can have an episode ready for Tuesday. I get that. I mean, I know how long mine takes, and I don't have to add sound effects or whistles or bells or anything. It's the sound effects. And the worst part is, is that a buddy of mine who's a professional sound editor in, in London, he licensed me like a really good sound effects license. So now I've got hundreds of thousands of sound and it screws you up because you're like, no, that's not the right door slam. And you spend hours yeah. slamming doors. The embarrassment of riches sends you into a... Yeah. Yeah. I was much happier when I had one door, yeah. one footstep, you know, <laughs> make yeah. things work better. Yeah, I get it. You know, it's funny. I sent it to my dad. I'm like, get to listen. And he's like, I thought you were in this. I'm like, I, I am You're all over it. He's like, I don't know which one is you. I'm like, awesome, Dad. Well, that's that's the point of acting, isn't it? I guess so. You I, know, just, I mean, I mean if you sounded he, just like his daughter yeah. on the phone, that wouldn't be good acting. I guess that's true. It's just funny. I'm like, okay. I think he thought I was full of shit or something. No, no, no. I mean, also, I mean, you should tell him too that I, I, every time you appear as a different character, you know, depending on like whether you're in a spaceship or whether you're a robot or whatever it is, I'm playing with your voice. Right. That's I'm what I told him. effects all over it. Yeah. 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 But he enjoyed it in general. He's enjoying the story because <laughs> he loves sci-fi. So he was really excited oh, good. about that. Yeah. Good. I was reading all stuff. Thank you for doing this again. Because after your post, what the fuck? <laughs> That's so much story. Which you kind of, yeah. you know, kept to the behind the wall. Well, well I've never actually talked about it. Um, yeah. And I'm going to have a difficult time talking about it now because I really only think stuff like this matters uh, when it's about when it informs an artist's work. You know, I don't think an artist's story is particularly important. I think identity politics are a distraction. Um, What I think is that, you know, it only it only matters if it informs the work. And I've gotten to the point in my life where, you know, I'm, you know, I've had a lot of artists in the last three months because I teach a lot come to me and with absolutely sure that because of some issue of race, color, gender, something they went through when they were a child, something they're going through now, you know, any number of roadblocks has is utterly prevents them from achieving any, you know, from becoming successful artists. And finally, I just was like, no. <laughs> So, you know, I, and so like, I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but I also just don't want to accept the premise that, you know, so that's why I did it. I understand. You know? I, I do find it 
Firstly, welcome to Hey Human, Mike Disa. Adore you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for... Oh, we're on. Yeah, let's do this. I mean, why not? Jump in, right? (laughs) Okay, I'll start lying now. The thing that I find interesting about that statement that you made is that I, I'm... I believe that everything you have been through as a person shapes your story that you're telling. It shapes the story of you, but it also informs what you're writing. No, I think that that's the perfect way of putting it, is it informs it. It doesn't necessarily shape it, because um, art, art is not personal expression. You know, personal expression is screaming in a movie theater or crying on the internet. I mean, and that, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's personal expression. Art is is a structured, purposeful, informed, educated creation that is not only designed to be a work of, uh, uh, of expression. As a matter of fact, I try very hard to keep expression out of my work. My work is, and, and I think the work of a, of a, a true classic artist isn't should have nothing to do with the artist himself in terms of like whether you like it or dislike it or whether it makes you feel good or feel bad. It's about communicating to another human being or group of human beings, um, regardless of their social uh, stat- status, uh, uh, education, uh, moment in history, place and time, or personal experience. <sighs> basic human information and experience and along so you affect their emotion you affect their heart and then along with that an artist also wants to affect your mind he wants to get across a particular he wants to talk about something you know maybe i want to discuss religion you know like uh, the great artists did or maybe i want to discuss the nature of humanity like michelangelo would do in religious paintings uh, so i mean it, it should it, it can inform it but it by no way dictates it limits it or you know that's all you have to do. I'm sorry. You still have to go out and you have to be well-read. You have to know what you're talking about. You have to study art. You have to study literature. You have to study music. You, know, you have to actually, you know, study politics and humanity and psychology and all the things you need to know. Cause otherwise you're not an artist. You're just having fun. But what do you, but how do you, how do you shape that around a, a Jimi Hendrix or who couldn't read music or a, uh, a Jackson Pollock who was shit faced out of his brain, you know, hole while well, he painted, or or uh, fringe art or outsider art, where these are people that haven't studied anything, and they. You said you said fringe art. I did. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought you said French for a minute. I was like, whoa, that was. We <laughs> we. Oui, oui. like, what do like, you mean? I said no French, French art. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, sorry. Um, well, and I can explain it like this. It's a lot more goes into that than. I'm not saying you're dismissing it, but it's dismissive to say Jimi Hendrix had a natural talent. Um, Jimi Hendrix worked his balls off. Absolutely. He played like a lunatic for sure. And and he educated himself. You know, you watch uh, interviews with him and I have. He knows more about what's going on in music than a lot of other people. He may not be classically trained. Totally but that agree man, with you. Totally agree yeah. with you. But f- from your what you said, the rhetoric sounded like you're saying that there there is a certain amount of education one must put oneself through to yes. come through the other side. Now, I believe as a songwriter and as a writer in general, it's imperative to read 
Read, 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 read everything. Read everything you can get your hands on because you must understand words and how they work and their intricacies and their puzzle and their well, it's beauty. Poetry. Yeah, it's, it's poetry. poetry. Absolutely. Yeah. The way they so, stand. Star writing is poetry with a good beat. <laughs> it's a mini movie, is what it is. Yeah, I mean, but, and that, you know, we could, you know, take that all the way back to Homer. I mean, you know, the, the, there's the songs of Homer. Homer, Homer and, Simpson. And, oh, God. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, but, uh, you know, but what I'm saying is you don't have to be formally educated. You don't have to be classically educated, but you must educate yourself or you're not an artist. Jimi Hendrix cared enough about what he did to educate himself beyond belief. Yeah, okay, he didn't know how to read music. And any artist can get there um, through whatever path is available to them. If you don't have, if you can't afford a computer, if you're, if you're illiterate, if there's any other things, you can still get there, but it takes a sense of discipline and, and an honest respect for what you're doing. And, and you've got to bring more to it than just... Intrinsic talent. Or I got beat up. You know, I mean, that's just not art. That, that's, that's, that's a sentence. Art should be more than that. It should be, this is what violence means. This is how it's used to control us. This is the effect of violence, both internally and externally. That's something an artist should talk about and maybe inform their work. You know, don't you feel sorry for me or aren't I cool because something happened to me? That's not art. It's and there's between active and passive artistic endeavors, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, art, the one thing all art has in common is it requires a crap load of work. Now, uh, Sidney Pollock is... Uh, Somebody I've studied a great deal, and um, I said Jackson Pollock just to be clear. Jackson Pollock, Sydney Pollock's the director. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> well, I thought <laughs> you were going to go somewhere with Jack- Sydney Pollock because it's a sensational sorry. director, obviously. <laughs> I know. Sorry about that. No, I don't know anything about Sydney Pollock, but Jackson Pollock, I've, I've studied a great deal, and um, this guy was an incredibly proficient technical artist before he moved into abstract expressionism. That's why he was taken seriously. Um, I think abstract expressionism destroyed, you know, modern art, but whatever. <laughs> but I'm not, not going to take that personally as an abstract artist. <laughs> no, 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 don't be, because I, I, I've done it myself. But what I'm saying is it, it what happened is commerce then, then decided, hey, it's easier now to just take the focus from the, the, the piece and put it on the artist. And then when you get the artist as celebrity, I think you've missed the whole point. Oh, I agree with you. I've read some abstracts of artists and I'm like, wow, that's a whole load of shit. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, no, that's, it's just easier to sell. Yeah. You know, I mean, because it takes all the hard stuff out, like, you know, being able to look at it, interpret it and ask yourself questions. Because um, the thing about abstract expressionism specifically, it asks the audience a great deal. It, it, you, you've got to educate yourself to understand that. And if you don't, you look at it and go, well, my kid can do that. And I'm like, well, congratulations there. You're, go have a Dorito. Um, <laughs> but, 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 so Jackson Post is amazing. The same thing with um, Picasso. You know, Picasso didn't start with collage. You know, he was, uh, he was a brilliant technical artist who started to just pull away everything extraneous. He wanted to get down to the absolute essentials of what, what the concept of creation is. But I mean, you know, he, he was still, I mean, Guernica is one of the greatest pieces of modern art in human history. Uh, it, well, human history and modern history, because it's modern art. Sorry about that. But, um, I, but there's a lot going on in Guernica. And again, the viewer has to educate themselves about what 
Guernica is, or else that's not going to make a lot of sense. Do you think that feeling steps in, though, when somebody takes in a work of art, whether it be music or the visual me- medium, that that there is a intuition that takes over? A f- yeah, it has to. It, it has to play all the all the instruments at once. Um, you can't really. Um, this is a rhetoric. You know, uh, there's four. There's three different styles of rhetoric. There's the appeal to uh, intellect. There's appeal to emotion, and there's appeal to um, uh, form. Um, you've got to do all three. Um, communication requires communication, specifically art, which is the highest and first form of communication. Before. Um, I have this conversation with my students all the time. I'm like, look, before, okay, archaeologists, when they go, they're digging up, um, they, they go dig up um, old settlements and they can find graves and they can find tools and they can find all sorts of things, but they're never sure. They're like, are these humans or are these hominids? They don't know. It's always a question because you know, every animal can do certain, almost everything human beings can do until you find representational art. At that point, you're like, people, you know, we define humanity as, as you know, whether we really realize it or not in science as creatures that can create art. Because you know what? Insects can do math. By the way, science is fantastic. I love it. <laughs> but um, insects can do math, uh, you know, uh, Spiders can do geometry and pattern making. There's, you know, sorry, you know, there's certain, um, you know, there's certain evidence now to suggest that um, certain forms of animals have something like religion. You know, I mean, they certainly have capitalism. I mean, ants are, you know, if you define capital as... Penguins are definitely capitalists. Yeah, there we go. I mean, so like everything we do, animals do, except art. And, you know... Astronomy, <laughs> not add, astrology. Add astrology. Astronomy. <laughs> I had to get that in there. <laughs> yeah, not astrology, please. I'm like, oh, I know. I love astronomy. I'm a Libra. I was like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but so, like, human beings. This is what we do, and art is the the first and most basic and most primal and also the most subtle and complex form of communication. We can look at the first art created by human beings and it speaks to us both emotionally and intellectually. Nothing else does that. We invented art before we invented gods. <laughs> we invented art before we invented culture, society. Poss- I mean, I'm sure we had love before that because love is probably biological, but everything that you think of as our civilization and our history and all that stuff, you know, it's kid stuff. Art was there long before it. And I could sit down with an artist from the Paleolithic period, and he and I could paint together. You know, we could we could communicate um, because we're both approaching things in a particular in a particular way, and that's what art does. It communicates across time and space, regardless of context. You know, if if it all requires on if it's just all about context, that's pop art, and you know, I got no interest in that. <laughs> you know, I mean, Disney movies are pop art. They're also. Uh, in some cases, as you well know, are taking the hero's journey. You know, Mickey Mouse within... Yeah, but the, hero, the hero's journey is, is pop art. The hero's journey is complete. I mean, I'm, there's nothing wrong with pop art. Wait, I mean, just hold on, hold on. I want to dig into that. You think the hero's journey is pop art? That's fascinating. That's, yeah, a, it's, that's completely, a... it's completely contextual. It, it, you, unless you are in a society... Do you mean because with... it has to understand itself? 
as being the hero's not journey? It, well, what I mean is, is the hero's journey only works in the context of what we would call culture. Okay, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So something like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a hero's journey, you say that that's yes. in the time of its time, it would be well, its and own even now, Even now. So like if you didn't have kings, if you didn't have city-states, that would be meaningless to you. It requires the context of... Got it. Of who he is. Got it. In order for that to work. And just because it's old doesn't mean it's universal. People forget that. I think when I um, hear the words pop art, I think of uh, of something more postmodern. No, I mean, you can, but it's it's not. Um, it, it, it can, I mean, again, pop, pop art isn't a derogatory term, uh, but it, it requires culture for context. That's why when you take a Campbell soup can, and you take it out of the context of holding soup and you make a painting of it and you stick it up in a museum and you charge $5 million for it, that only makes sense if you know what a Campbell soup can is and what you know a, 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 um, a museum or a gallery is. Without that information, that is meaningless. Do you know what this reminds me of uh, the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy? When yeah, exactly. Yeah. Isn't that a great movie? Yeah, it's totally about what, what is pop art. That's a brilliant movie. Yeah, you know, and it, it, I've, I've talked to people about it, and I'm, I'm amazed you got that because most people are like, "Oh, it's about this, it's about that." I'm like, "No, it's about the context of art." Good Lord, <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. You know, I never say that. You know, I, never, I always try to be encouraging when people are at least digging in. Anyway, so the point of it is, is that the reason I don't talk about my history is, well, I suppose one, it scares the hell out of people, but two is, um, it it's irrelevant to my work except for how it starts me on my journey of thought. But by the time you see my work, it's not about that. <laughs> you know, it's about all the other stuff I'm trying to bring to it. Um, and a little bit of that, but you don't need to know that to, to, for me to successfully communicate to you. As a matter of fact, it could get in the way. Interesting. You know, I think artists should be, artists should be voids. You know, what do you know about Michelangelo or Da Vinci's temperament? You know, I, what do you know about the cave painters, uh, you know, religions or loves or hates? You know, nothing. And good. You're not supposed to. I, I can't say that I disagree with that because I was just having this conversation the other day with a friend of mine. And we were uh, talking about a country artist that we both know. And the the story built around him, it's, it's like he couldn't just exist as a great songwriter and great artists, they had to, to talk about how he was living in his car at one time, and he was this, and he was that, yeah. as if that somehow it's justifies suddenly. Yeah, it's irrelevant. Yeah. And, and, and that's capitalism. That's media. Because yeah. they're always trying to sell you something. Yeah. And the easiest thing to sell is a story, you know, um, of, of like, okay, you sit, forgive me for being Do what like you've got to do, please. Okay. <laughs> Sit your fat ass in that couch and buy Doritos and whatever the hell we tell you to because it's going to make you feel better about all the crap we're about to make you feel bad about. And the one of the ways you do that is like, look, this person's special because this happened to them. Okay. I mean, I hate to just say this, but, you know, we are filled in a world right now with people who think they have unlimited, unassailable virtue despite the way they behave simply because they were the passive acquirer of some some action <laughs> i was hit by lightning therefore i know all these things you know I, I, you know i'm being the victim 
or the perpetrator of violence or, or, or any other number of things it is not a license to be an asshole your whole life and feel good about it. Do you think that, though, there is room in there to say these things happened to this person and it's not it didn't stop them? So why is it stopping you? That's, that's the only thing worth saying, yeah. because it certainly it certainly didn't make the guy an artist. You know, if anything, he became an artist despite it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, um, you know, it used to be like, you know, we acknowledge people's achievements despite their hardships. And we talked about their hardships to encourage others. Now, it seems like society wants to say people are artists and are successful because of them. It's and a that chicken and egg. Different. It's definitely a chicken and yeah. egg argument for sure. But, but there's a larger, there's a larger, more pervasive and subtle evil, evil to that, which is like, because that happened to them, they have the ability to do that. You don't. Yeah. It's like, well, of course you do. Yeah. You know, you can be, you know, a, a really, really successful, rich white guy with all the money in the world and become a great artist. I don't know how much I would really like your art, but, you know, let's, but I know I'm, I'm kidding. I've actually said like, you can have all the advantages in the world and be a great artist. Um, and you can have all the disadvantages in the world and be a great artist. And those things, neither one of those things has anything to do with what you, the effort and the time and the intel and the, the, Nothing that, that shouldn't have anything to do with your art. You know, whether or not it's good or bad, it, it can be judged in, in, you know, on its own, in and of itself. I've had people say to me, oh, wow, because I took up painting late in life, you know, and, I, and I've had people say to me, oh, how did, how did you know you were a painter? And I said, well, I didn't. I just started painting. And, you know, I you wasn't. Know. And then I put effort into it. Exactly. And then I was. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you know, and they're like, oh, I could never do that. It's like, how, how do you know? I just start painting. Just start doing the thing. And guess what? You probably can. <laughs> well, the thing about it is, of course you can if you put effort into it. Yeah. How do you become an athlete? You know, no, there's no, there's no three-year-old child with athletic, you know, ability. You know, they have to grow up and train their muscles and, 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 and learn how to behave like that. John Mayer but taught himself how to play guitar. There we go. I mean, so did the guy who invented the guitar. The, the thing about it is, is the fact that, it, see how persuasive, persuasive that is? How, how, how that can be used to control people and keep them docile. Okay, we want you to work this crappy job and live this life and consume. And you know what? It's all because you don't have all this special crap. You know, you'll do it. And But now we've turned kind of um, having bad things happen to you into some sort of special skill it's like well no i'm sorry <laughs> speaking french is a special skill you know you know having you know having bad things happen to you is i'm sorry not a skill i'm sorry for you i really am but it happens you know, to be... most of us as well it, it's yeah. there's a cult to, to celebrity of course that that keeps that, that has a pretty high gate a pretty high wall the media is doing that on purpose. I tell you this as a member of the media. I've been in the meetings. I've been told what I can and cannot do. I've been told why. <laughs> okay, you know, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I tried just recently when I was at Warner Brothers doing a TV show. I tried to do an episode of it about Dr. Shivago, and I was told, no, 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 Russians aren't good anymore. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, it's the media isn't run by idiots. They know what they're doing and they know what the bottom line is. And I say this as a member of the media and the whole thought process of personal experience being the same thing as skill or ambition or dedication or achievement is so we won't 
at least the effect of it is, I won't, I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but at least the effect of it is it sedates people. It cows people. It makes people quiet. I'm, I'm not an artist. Okay. Wait a minute. You're not an artist today. You know, I'm not a politician. You're not a politician today. Go run for something. Yeah, there's hurdles and there's effort and it requires sacrifice and personal achievement. But anyways, you know, I, I'm, I, I just have spent a lot of time in the last few months just hearing all the excuses from these young artists. Um, and, you know, my heart goes out to them. It's just like, but, you know, you're, you're out of your mind. You, you have no idea what you can accomplish. Well, I think there is, too, a sense from what I've gathered I, I, that there is an expectation, thanks to media, thanks to reality television, that if I just show up and say, I am X, Y, Z, you will give me all the things and I will then be X, Y, Z. And that's not in general how it works yeah no i I mean i mean you um yeah there's two great points that that leads to and i think that's spectacular observation i really do i think one that has the dual effect of both both making people feel not special at all and then looking for anything in their lives that they can cling to to make them special whether it's particularly special or not um you know forgetting the fact that every human being is special you know, the, the universe created some, you know, a piece of cognitive matter that is you because it needed you to do some stuff. And that's a pretty big deal. But, you know, look around for, you know, <laughs> other stuff to make yourself special. Being a miracle, being a quantum freaking miracle isn't enough <laughs> um, because, you know, we're 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 beaten down. Um, the other thing about that that is. Well, maybe maybe that's too dark to get into at the moment. But it's it's also no, it's also a, a it's too theoretical. But what I'm saying is is that the effect of innate special is is no different than what medieval religion used to do. I mean, you know, the the story of Excalibur and King Arthur is all about the rights of kings, which was all about control, which was all about stealing money. Uh, the 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 myth of the philanthropy and genius of billionaires now is the same thing, um, and specialhood is the is the kryptonite for democracy. I, I mean, I concur with that whole statement, and I'm <laughs> I feel like I want to. What did you say the the miracle. What did you say? I, I'm going to have to go back and write that no, down. No, you're, you're a quantum miracle. I mean, you're a quantum you're, look, miracle, and that's it. not enough. That is a bumper sticker. <laughs> but, but I mean, think about it. You're inanimate matter. I know. You're I'm made out it. of dead inanimate matter. You are. Stardust. You are. We're stardust. Every, yeah, stardust. Every atom in our body was created in exploded suns. The atoms in our bodies are no different than the atoms we use for fuel. They're no different than the atoms we use to, to make toilet paper. Um, there, you are made out of inanimate uh, matter, and yet you are aware of death. You are cognitive. You are, you have the ability to do so many other things. You are the universe learning about itself. Amen. You know, you know with death hanging over you the whole time. I mean, sure. that, that's not enough to feel like you're special. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> Everyone listening you know, to this is about to have an existential crisis. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I think I, I thought yeah, about I this a lot it. when I was. I love it. I thought about this. A, I mean, I'm glad you like it. I, I ended up thinking about this a lot when I was younger because my best friend killed himself mm. when he was very young, and you know, I was. I, I always think, God damn! I bet you he expected credits to roll afterwards. 
You know, I mean, I, you know, just, you know, he's so lived in kind of pop culture and he was so connected to that kind of stuff that he couldn't find value in himself. And so he had a, he had a hard time and, you know, he, he, he killed himself. And I'm like, well. How old was he when he did that? He was 20. We, he'd been my best friend, my only friend for many years. He'd been my best friend through all sorts of crap. I can't even describe you. And then just one day, you know, um, and, you know, I know why, because I was going through the same stuff. But, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 not TV. It's, you know, it, it and don't worry, you'll be dead soon enough. You know, you're going to be dead forever. There's no need to rush. <laughs> you know, there's no need to rush. Um, so I think about it too much, probably. I ask this question of a lot of my guests because I'm always curious to hear uh, what someone has to say. Uh, do you believe in reincarnation? No. No. Do you believe in God? No. No. Okay. So for you... Yeah, is- take that. Yeah, uh-huh. you don't believe me either, you son of a gun. Oh, rat. Fuck it. <laughs> Go give eye cancer to some more babies, you rat. <laughs> do you... Uh, I, let me put it this way. I, you know, being Catholic, I can't help. It's, it's programmed into me. Mm. But intellectually, I'm like, you know, if if you're there, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Some put it that way. So I'd rather feel not. Hmm? And see, here's the thing that I find interesting, because most of the people I know who uh, don't believe in God, even if they want to because it was beat into them, quote unquote, uh, I Literally, say that, yeah, I, yeah. I say that slightly tongue in cheek. Although you said you grew up Catholic at a time when that was, oh yeah, yeah, corporal punishment uh, and religion went hand in hand. Uh, if, not that it doesn't now, but you know what I'm saying. I was gonna say it's like it wasn't even punishment. It was just like Tuesday, but whatever. <laughs> right, right. But yet, do you find yourself praying? Do you pray? Only when I'm helpless in the face of bad things happening to my children is the, I mean, I can't stomach the hypocrisy um, of praying unless one of my children is sick and it happens. And I find myself, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. I mean, you, when we are utterly helpless, what do you do? You know, I mean, I mean, I guess prayer is the least destructive thing you can do. You know, going out and tearing people apart and being angry and expressing yourself in unhealthy ways, you know, that's not a good idea. I guess, you know, prayer is at least quiet and not harmful. And, you know, there's studies that say it calms the mind and refreshes the body. So why not? Yeah, I pray. And when I pray, I'm often wondering at the same time, am I praying to find strength outside of myself or inside of myself? And I don't know the answer, but I think it's a great question. (laughs) It it is a a really great question. I mean, it, and please don't take that. I don't mean to be dismissive when I say this because I don't mean this at all. It's not, um, it's hard to offend me. Trust me. Okay. No, no, no. But I meant it's not a question that particularly interests me. And the reason for that is simply because, you know, you get to an age where I'm like, if it works, don't worry about it. <laughs> I've got other things to worry about. I've got other big questions I want to examine. And if somebody wants to pray and they don't use that as an excuse to be a shit to somebody, then fantastic. So the woman who probably saved my life when I was young, uh, when I was going to St. Joseph's School for Troubled Boys, 
um, <laughs> was the math teacher. She was a nun. And she was this little ball of muscle and willpower and brilliance. And she would spend her summer vacations working for NASA, helping plot the Voyager course. And then she would come teach thugs from the inner city math because she was a nun and she was called to service. And, you know, she, I didn't know this until much later, but there were, you know, personal reasons in her life why she, why she probably you know, chose the church. And that's none of my business. But what I can tell you is the fact is that this woman of faith did more good than any other human being I've ever met. And she's the one who convinced me I wasn't an idiot. She was the one who got my IQ tested. You know, I had spent all those years as a thug and a bum and, 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 you know, like failing classes and, you know, being sports and just all that stuff. And one day she just, I never know how she saw it. She pulled me out of her math class and she got my IQ tested. And, you know, it was pretty good. And um, stuck me in all these honors classes. And then in order to pull me out of all the violence I was in, she used to drive to my house every morning on a moped and drive me to school on the back of her moped to make sure I go. <laughs> and she did that because she had faith. She prayed. And once we had a conversation about evolution where she was like, I don't want to hear any of your crap. Read your Bible. Seven days. And I was like, wow. <laughs> but, but she's allowed to have that cognitive dissonance because best human being I've ever met. So I'm not going to give anybody crap about faith and I'm not going to give any crap about prayer. If you use it to kill people or hurt people or make yourself feel better than people, well, then I think you've missed the point, but whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> or do bad and then hide behind a God yeah. to, to make some sort of reasonable argument where there is none in my, or, you know, in my yeah, humble like, opinion. Yeah. Or use, you know, religion to justify racism, which is, you know, where the hell we are as a country and have been for about 400 years. Yeah. Truthful. Let's get back to your childhood, shall we? You are from Illinois. I'd rather not I ever. I'm it. glad when it was over. <laughs> Let's go, baby. Take my hand. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Illinois? Chicago. Mm-hmm. What about it? What I'm was, sorry. I don't understand. What was childhood for you? deeply uncomfortable talking about this in this context. I really, I mean, if we could talk about it in the context of art, I'd be much more comfortable. Um, I was born in the south side of Chicago, about 64th Street, uh, within walking distance of Market Park. And if any, anyone listening to this knows where Market Park is, it's the murder capital of the world. It's where all the murders happen. Uh, it was the intersection of several, several different gangs, territories. Um, and even though when I was there, it wasn't quite so bad. You know, you didn't walk the streets alone. You know, everybody had to, you had to go to school. You know, one of the reasons Chicago has exploded into violence is because they shut down all the parish schools and all the local schools, so kids have to walk through other gang territories to get to school. Um, when I was a, a kid, uh, you didn't have to walk. I didn't have to walk through another gang territory to get to school. Thank God, but we did walk next to one, so you never went alone. So identity politics being the thing we're all taught to hook onto instantly. You know, it was, you know, the Deeses, the Bohencheks and the Clarys. It was the Irishmen and the Italians and the Polish guys. We all we all cooked together into, you know, a, a youth group. Um, led by older youths. And <laughs> 
that would sometimes, uh, you know, make money doing uh, other things. And um, there were other kids forced into exactly the same situation, you know, six blocks from me. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, the, uh, there was a, a large black community, uh, two parishes. There was us and we were like the enclave of whites, but it, what you, you, they weren't all whites. There were no Presbyterians. You were Polish, you were, you were Italian or you were Irish. What do they all have in common? They were all poor Catholic. Um, and there were, you know, other, there, there were no um, wasp gangs. Uh, but <laughs> I think they lived other places. I think they had better. But, you know, there were other gangs around there. And you just had to be careful. I mean, you just, violence was a daily day, a day-to-day thing. You didn't even think about it. Um, violence is like telling a fish he lives in the ocean. Yeah, it's, it's like, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as an ocean. There's just, you know, coral and other fish and blah, blah, blah. You know, you can't. So violence was like that. I mean, every I, I, I can't remember any memory in my life of course they, they call this Irish memory you only remember the bad things um, I can't remember ever a time when I wasn't you know fighting or you know getting held down and people spit in your mouth or you know kick you in the <clears throat> uh, places that hurt um, you know you know and it happened you know on the way to school it happened on the schoolyard it happened in the uh, in the classroom it happened in the bathroom the going to the bathroom was taking your life in your hands um a couple times well once i remember i got you know a big kid we were in the slides a big kid you know threw me off the slide on the concrete um head first on the concrete below i was a little kid i didn't think anything of it it's not a big deal but you know it was so common that the uh, teachers just brought me inside and had me sit at my desk while i kept passing out and throwing up till the end of school and that's not particularly that wasn't even the worst thing that happened to me that week. And everybody else was going through that too. I mean, that was just how violent that time in that place was. It was, you know, like I said, it's a fish. It's trying to explain the water to a fish. Okay. I didn't even realize, I didn't even realize it was violent. <laughs> I was like in my thirties. I swear to God. You did, was your, did you grow up in a, in a poor family, affluent, middle, middle of the road? I, both my parents were school teachers uh, living in the south side of Chicago. I mean, um, it was lower middle class, probably. Big middle, family? Middle class. A lot of kids? No, myself, uh, my brother, my two sisters. My brother died very young. And um, my uh, mom and my dad. And, you know, eventually they, when my younger sisters started getting older, they did pull together the money and they moved to a suburb. Uh, but that at that point, you know, it was just a different. You're trading, you know, the, it was ingrained in me. So I was just I trade one in, one different violent culture for another different violent culture. The problem is I didn't understand the suburbs. <laughs> I understood city violence. I didn't understand suburb violence. But that's a whole different thing too. How did your brother pass? Um, he had a congenitive heart. He had a hole in his heart when he was born, and my parents couldn't afford the operation to um, save his life. Um, because the insurance denied it. And uh, so my he uh, smothered to death in my mother's arms in the hospital. Wow. That's awful. That's what happens when you can't afford the good insurance. And it's not, I mean, look, everybody I knew had a member of the family die. And, you know, looking back, I realized all of it was preventable. But, you know, hey, you know, the important thing is, is that, you know, our insurance companies, you know, turn a profit every year right that's a whole other story 
you were- I got a kid with, I got an epileptic child and one child with type one diabetes. You don't want to talk to me about insurance. <laughs> you don't want to talk to me about insurance, yeah. you know? Um, but, uh, so yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's not a coincidence that Irish people have a lot of kids. It's, you know, you're trying to get a couple of them to adulthood. Sure. Did that and the fact that, you know, they, there's nothing else to do, but hide from God in the dark and have sex. Did your, don't forget masturbation. Shh, don't say it. Uh, did your parents. Forget it. <laughs> I'm doing it right now. I mean, you know what? When, when people like you make that joke, it's cute. When old creepy guys like me make the joke, it's like, ugh, it's gross. I gross myself out. <laughs> uh, are your parents, did they stay together through that? Because I imagine that's. Oh, definitely. Oh, God. Yeah, Catholic. We all stay together. Oh, I mean, y'all sure. I mean, end up in separate bedrooms, but yeah, we all stay. Together. There's never been a divorce. That no. is, that's such a traumatic thing. That even though you say that was a bit run of the mill for the time and place, did that trauma hang over the house? I don't know. How I, I don't know how to answer that. I can tell you this: um, my parents were economically wiped out by the bill the hospital that let my brother die presented them. So my father, who was an art teacher and had desperately wanted to be an artist his whole life, but you know, had to become a teacher in order to pay the bills, uh, was forced to work his summers in a post office to pay off the medical bills that his dying son incurred. And he did when he was 45, 50 years old, he was throwing bags of mail over his head. Look, we're a working class family. <laughs> you just get shit done. You described yourself as a thief, a smuggler, a thug, what were you smuggling? Are you? I you... Let... What was Hi. I smuggling? Yeah, Cupid dolls. No, yeah. I mean, I mean, were what? you a drug runner back then? Look, I've uh, done a lot of drugs, so I've put I'm that out there also, all the time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There is such a thing as statute of limitations, and I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> oh, you must be far past that by now. No, I mean, I mean there's certain things I'm not going to answer. Let's just say, um, as as part of. Actually, it, it, it leads itself to a different, to a, a pretty cool story, but um, let's hear it. Okay, I'll tell you that one in a second. But let, let's say it like this: Look, if you if you, and, and this is what's going on today in America. So so forget that I'm telling you this story. Imagine you're a young black man in 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 America. No, don't imagine you're a piece of crap white person judging a black person in America right now. And let me explain this to you if you've never been through it. Okay, this isn't about race or identity or culture or any of the crap or, or hard work or values or any of the crap people talk about. If you live in a shooting gallery, you have to work your way through the maze. Okay. And to do that, you need help. There have to be people at your back. Okay. You and your young friends aren't enough. So there's going to be older people and there's going to be those older people answer to other older people and so on and so forth. And there are certain things you have to do to stay protected nobody joins a gang because they want to waste their life you join a gang to stay alive and then they work at you and they kill your soul and you know you you become a part of a generational problem but it has it's it's just the reality of it if you're told to do something or you have to walk to school alone the next day you're gonna do it you know, and then eventually you, you come to love these people around you who are taking care of you. You love them more than your own family. And then things are presented to you in the context of, are you going to let us down? 
are you going to fail us after all, all the times we've been there for you, after all the bloody fights we pulled you out of and rescued you from after that time where that guy was stabbing you in the face and, you know, we, we came flying out of nowhere. Are you, are you really that kind of person that you, you, I mean, you know, it's the same thing the military does to you. You know, are you really not going to help us go wipe out this, you know, this town of people you've never met? <laughs> um, so I did everything I had to do and smuggling was in many ways the least of it. That's why I wrote it down. I mean, there was a lot more horrible shit I was involved in than that. You've been shot at. I've been shot at a lot. I've only been hit twice. Once in the ass running a party from a, the boyfriend of a, of a girl I was sitting on. So kind of that one, I don't think you could, you could actually, <laughs> you can actually call off to, to my childhood. That was just me picking on. That was just me doing something stupid. And yes, I have been shot in the ass which is the best place to be shot. Honestly, I've heard, I, I caught it. I, I did, I did get shot another time. I am. What happened the other time? I fell down. <laughs> was it, was it grave? Was it? No, it uh, wasn't grave. As a matter of fact, I didn't go to, I didn't go to the emergency room for like, see the, the thing about medical care in America is that they have to report it. And that's part of Joe Biden's crime bill and all that crap, which means that you're not going to necessarily go seek um, medical help. Even if you weren't involved in a gun battle, you weren't trying to kill somebody. I mean, I wasn't. I was just you know in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, but, you know, doing something I probably shouldn't have been doing. Um, and, you know, you get shot and you're like, I'm not going to. Uh, first of all, I'm never going to tell my parents. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to figure some way to hide the wound from the people who are supposed to love you. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, the other thing is, is you, you can't go seek medical help, at least not the day of or anytime near it, um, because they'll report it. And, you know, you can't do that. You'll destroy your family, you'll destroy your friends. So, and then by the way, you think <laughs> another thing, you know, people, if you don't understand this context, if, if daily life requires you to have people at your back to protect you. What do you think the idea of going to jail for a couple of days means? You're in there without protection. I've been in jail four times. Um, you know, never prison, but always like overnight count, you know, Cook County, Cook County, Cook County lockup. That's fun. Everybody should do that. <laughs> um, it, it is Lord of the Flies the moment you enter those doors. And the cops don't give, I mean, not, not only do they not give a crap, they're usually actively okay with bad things happening. And I, you know, I can't blame them. I come from a family of, you know, firefighters and cops, you know, I understand their point of view, but you know, that doesn't make it not wrong. You know, um, I understand their point of view the same way I understand, you know, a gangster's point of view. I mean, that's the, that's, I mean, so if it informs to go back to informing art, if, if this all had any value at all, it's, it's to allow you a, a wider perspective to be able to emote and empathize with other people who don't look and act like you and to be able to say like, okay, I understand how policemen are twisted into people who can get off on hurting people. Cause I saw that happen to family members. Um, I also saw though, you know, some of those same family members be unbelievable heroes. Both those things are true. Um, I can hold the, both those thoughts in my head. Um, you know, criminals aren't, you know, cartoon characters. But on the other hand, nothing justifies violence. Nothing justifies no amount of, 
of your own pain can justify inflicting on others. And that's, of course, the thing we all used to justify the way we behaved was, I've been hurt worse. Or I'm somehow on the right side of this line that has been deemed the right yeah. line. No, the, the team the team player thing. Like, you're not going to let your brothers down. You're not going to let your sisters down, are you? You're not going to stop protecting your family, are you? Yeah. Um, but, but that's, again, if there's a value to this experience, it's only in that it helps you widen your perspective. And then that is an artist's job, is to see things from the outside. I can't be a part of society and buying into the bullshit and be a critic of it or, and see it and be able to represent it. So you have to be able to step outside. What was the story that came to your head a minute ago? Oh, uh, well, one of the, mm, how much of this can I tell? I'm not getting drawn. Okay. Um, you can change the names to protect the. Yeah, nobody's, I'm not going to fool anybody. <laughs> okay. So uh, one of the things I used to do to make money, and this is actually terrible too. And this gets into, um, uh, the horror, I mean, as bad as it was for me, imagine being a, a girl who grows up in the same world, right? Um, and, you know, I was big, at least, you know, and I had the ability to learn how to protect myself under most circumstances, though I never felt safe and never felt like I wasn't terrified all the time. Um, I was, uh, I was in college and I went there on a football scholarship and I didn't want to play football so bad. And I wanted to be an artist. And uh, my dad was like, my dad, who was an art teacher, was like, no, you're not going to be an artist. You're going to get a, a decent career. So he would only help me pay for it if I uh, uh, studied computer science. So I was studying advanced math and computers in college. And two years earlier, <laughs> that was insane. Um, and I really wanted to, you know, take art. My dad was just totally against it. So in order to pay for the art classes, and this is back when you still could do this. No, it's physically impossible for any young person to work their way through college anymore. I mean, that's, that's a fantasy. Um, but in order to do this, uh, I had to take summer jobs. And I, you know, I had summer jobs working in old folks' home, you know, washing dirty diapers and, you know, and climbing buildings. And I was a mover and I was a bouncer and I was thousand other god-awful horrible things. I was a mechanic on the Coca-Cola line. You know, <laughs> I did all sorts of things. But the thing that really made the difference was I would occasionally, <clears throat> for friends, okay, with crooked noses and accents, hey, hey, you know what you should do for us? You should drive this truck here. So, I mean, I could clean up. Um, I was, a you know, kind of a soft-looking, you know, uh, kid, and I tried you know, as much as I tried to hide it from my friends and, and, and people, I've tried to be well-read. I was trying to, I was reading science fiction. I was reading comic books. I was reading literature. I was reading anything I could get my hands on. And I was, I was dreaming beyond 64th Street. Um, so I could clean up. You know, you could put me in a shirt and a uh, nice shirt and nice pair of pants and I could go into the police station and talk to the cops and they wouldn't think. Uh, I mean, they knew me, but I'd go to a different, <laughs> go to a different station. And, you know, I could, I could talk. They would send me in to talk things out. Like, you know, if they, if they wanted someone to be reasonable because, you know, the particular local bars weren't paying off, they would send me in first to talk to them. And, you know, I was always surprised when I showed up later. It, Wait, hold on. Hold that thought. Paying off local bars... Well, the lo local bars in Chicago at the time, I'm sure this isn't true anymore, so please don't send anybody after me. Um, what they used to do is you used to have to buy liquor from a particular place. 
and um, you had to buy a certain amount, whether you wanted it or not, or whether you used it or not. And um, sometimes people wouldn't want to, or and you had to buy, you know, the pickled eggs from them too. You know? <laughs> Everything, you know, pickled eggs, dark boards, whatever. Um, and sometimes, you know, uh, these local. Sorry, it's my phone. And sometimes these local places, uh, you know, the guys that do ran over tough guys, were great guys. So, you know, you know, North side guys, South side guys, you know, guys from Cicero. I mean, these were, these were tough. I love these guys who ran these bars. They were just my heroes. And uh, sometimes somebody wouldn't want to pay old Irishman wouldn't want to pay or something. And they would send me in to talk to him and I would talk to him and I'd, I'd be very reasonable. I wasn't like threatening or anything like, like, look, you know, Mr. O'Malley, <laughs> this is the global situation here, you know, and, and there is no way out for any of us, you know, please, sir. I, I know it's a problem and I know it's unfair, but you know, look at all the other things that might happen. I mean, this is the best, the best thing for you. I swear to you is, is to let me lay out this and, you know, you'd be amazed how often that worked. Um, and sometimes people wouldn't, um, listen and sometimes then me and some other guys would have to go back and get the money um, but that, but they could clean me up enough that people would you know I could go talk to somebody's wife I could go talk to a grandmother I could go talk to people and try to get them to literally see reason <laughs> I wasn't trying and I would never go like make the case that this was right I was just like but what, what, are we, what else are we going to do you know I mean you know yes you could call the police but you know what's going to happen and some of the police you call might, in fact, be on our side. Well, it was it was more fluid than that. It was less I black imagine. and white than that. Yeah. I mean, there's... Everything is less black and white than people yeah. take credit for. Yeah, I mean, like, you can call the cops, but, like, even the best-meaning cop in the world is going to be like, what the hell do you think I can do for you that isn't going to make things a thousand times worse? You know, and that's not a bad cop. I mean, that that's a decent human being <laughs> it's like i mean there's no power you have an unrealistic expectation of the amount of power an individual policeman has and yeah then sometimes you'd call the wrong cop um and that happened too but um mostly it was just people who were just trying to survive the system and do whatever good they can having said that you know you end up doing a lot of harm with that mindset which is worse being stabbed or being shot since you've had both happen to you what an odd we're talking all these philosophical, economic, and societal issues, and it's, just, I mean, that? I, I, um, being stabbed was worse because it was close up. I could see him in the eyes, and I felt utterly helpless. It, it, it was, there was nothing I could do to stop him. You know, once I lost, once I couldn't get my hand where it needed to be, uh, there was a feeling of just violation and helplessness I can't describe, it. and you're looking in the eyes of someone who's enjoying it. It, it was very, that was worse. Uh, getting shot. I don't, I mean, I don't know who the hell shot me. He just drove by and shot. <laughs> but, um, uh, but getting stabbed is an act of really, really, um, it's God, very almost, personal. Sexual, almost sexual violence. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> definitely a sexual component to it. I think that you're, you're on the nose there. Did, did you, uh, were you being robbed or had, was this a vengeance sort of thing? Um, different, different things at different occasions. Once I was just, uh, in the uh, in the um, basement of the, of the high school, and I was uh, I think we just finished football practice, and I walked down the hall, and there were four guys waiting for me. And you know, another time I was uh, in a fight at a party, 
Um, and it was just a big fight and somebody pulled a knife and I thought I'd be a hero and help my buddy out and didn't notice the guy behind me had a knife and he got me a couple of times. I mean, it, it, there's always a story with it, but none of it matters. Um, you know, I, once I, you know, I had my portfolio in my car in California and I was, you know, they, these gangsters wanted to steal the, I mean, the gang, you know, that I was parked in their parking lot, wanted the car. And I was like, well, I can't give you the car. I mean, I was like, I, I'll give you the car, but I need my portfolio. And they were like, no. And I was like, I'm not going to let you have the portfolio. I got to have the portfolio. You can have the car. They were like, no, we're going to take old mother thing, motherfucker. Um, so I, you know, grabbed a tire iron and we went at it. And I got ended up stabbed a couple times, but I kept the portfolio. That sounded like I was making you know something wrong. You know what's so interesting about that is that moment, you, you had been preparing for that moment. <laughs> Your whole life. I, I'd probably been asking for it my whole life. Just saying this. And oh, by the way, the portfolio was shit, and I threw it out like three weeks later. <laughs> started over. I mean, the irony of it is incredible. But I mean, like, it's always something. I mean, violence is never like in the movies. It's not even in the movies like I write. It's always unexpected. You're always surprised, unless you're the, unless you're out looking for trouble, and I've done that too. Um, it, it's always like by the time you figure out what's going on, it's too late. It's it's already happening. Um, it's always shocking. It's always surprising. It's always terrifying. Um, you know, it's just not like the movies. I, I don't know how to describe about it. It's like, you know, getting stabbed is getting stabbed, getting, you know, getting hit with a tire iron. And, um, I've got some, you know, I mean, if, when I was young, I used to tell these stories in graphic detail about how, you know, I got my teeth knocked out in Comiskey park by a gang of kids, you know, with, with chains and, and and on and on and on and on and on, I got my jaw broken. I got my eye popped out of its socket. I got all these things happen to me. And then, but the reality of it was, the worst part was then afterwards having to hide it from everybody. So because you didn't ever I, go to the emergency room, or sometimes you did. Because I, I, I sometimes, you got, some, sometimes I did if I could come up with a story. And you've been tossed from emergency rooms. Oh well, that was out here because I didn't have the money. Oh fuck! <laughs> I was st- I was I was bleeding from that thing I told you about with the portfolio, um, from two stab wounds in my back, and um, I went into the emergency room. And when I couldn't show an insurance card, they threw me out. They gave me they basically just taped it up and said go. Um, and so you know I didn't infected, and I'm like you know wandering the beach with a. <laughs> oh God, I won't get into it. it. It makes it sound heroic, and it's not. Um, it's stupid. But the, the, the thing, you know, if there's any value to me talking about this, it's the fact that what you have to understand is that people who live in violence, you know, with the exception of the gangsters who totally, you know, they make that their identity, is that you're hiding it. You're different things to different people. To my dad, I wanted to be a good son and someone like him, you know, and he had, you know, walked away from his abusive shit of a father you know, decades earlier, his father was a millionaire, you know, from the, from various things. And he, you know, walked away from him to marry my mother and be an art teacher. I mean, he was, he was a hero. He was a good man. You know, my wife thinks he was violent, you know, when we talk about how he raised me, but, you know, compared to his father, he was amazing. I mean, he and that took an effort of will. My best friend, he was the best man in my wedding. But to him, I never wanted to be a failure. I never wanted to be weak or a loser. And I never wanted to be cruel. I never wanted to be a bully. To my mother, I always wanted to be the good son. 
to my cousins, I wanted to be an example. To my friends, I wanted to be someone they could count on and all these different people. So like you end up with your eye popped out of your socket because you got hit with a brick. You've got to figure a way to not let anyone know what happened. You know, you've got to hide it because, you, you know, you, you, you can't let all these different people you are be revealed. <laughs> um, so it, it gets complicated. It gets really complicated. And, um, you know, um, you know, I, you, you, you got to go figure it out. I remember the, the worst thing that ever happened was I got in a really, really bad fight and I got hurt and I was out for, t- I, I didn't go home for two or three days because I was like, I just couldn't let them see me. And um, I finally did go home and, you know, clearly I'd been, I had the shit kicked out of me. And um, my mother, you know, the, I couldn't put the antiseptic on the hands. I'd broken my hands so badly and they were all cut up and stuff that um, you have to disinfect the wounds and I couldn't, I didn't have any fingers that were usable. So uh, the next day, my mother had to put the antiseptic on my hands and she was weeping hysterically. You know, and talking about my brother who had been long dead. And she was so, so upset having to treat my wounds. And I was just, it's the lowest I've ever felt in my life. You know, she was, I mean, it's, it's worse when people know about it. I suppose hearing that last statement connects to the beginning of the conversation where the story of you isn't the story you're trying to tell. Never. I, I don't think the story of me is worthwhile. Um, I really don't. And I, because I've got better stories to tell. I've got better, we can have a better conversation than me talking about the time I got the crap kicked out of me. We can talk about how violence affects society and how race and sex is used by wealthy people to set us at each other. The media can, is a big, I mean, talk about movies where it comes to violence and race and the, oh, yeah, the it, repetition it, of a story that isn't even a truthful story, and yet it perpetuates an idea that then creates a truth. Yeah, I mean, the idea of, well, I mean, I guess we can get into John Wayne and all that crap, but mm-hmm. it, it, look, it, but it's more persuasive, persuasive than that. I mean, children's entertainment is designed to teach people to be okay with this stuff. Disney movies are not escapism. Disney movies are to teach young women to behave because every one of them is basically the same thing. Yeah. You know, the little um, mermaid is a classic. You give up your voice, you get the man. Yeah. What happens is you have a dream and if you're nice circumstances and other people, friends you meet on the way, will basically achieve your dream for you. So sit down and shut up. <laughs> and if you can find me a Disney movie that doesn't say that, I mean, you know, I was like, um, I made an animated film where the, there was a female, um, there was an actual female protagonist and she was actively trying to do good and she did good for other people and she was, she fought, she was, you know, was, and, you know, 
the reaction to that from people who just wanted a Disney movie was unbelievable. It was the most shockingly sexist thing I've ever seen. Um, you know, well. That's what I know. find so interesting. I bring up The Wizard of Oz a lot on this show. And oh, yeah. the idea that she thinks she needs these outside influences, the lion, the tin man, the... the uh, uh, who's the third one? Scarecrow. Scarecrow. And then at the end, when, spoiler alert, she is told that she had it within herself the whole time. And she just yeah, didn't she, quite realize but, it. But she she didn't. She just didn't know how to use the magic shoes. And, and But, she, but actually, the, shoes, the shoes were the conduit, but she was the, the thing that had the power. But remember, she got the shoes by accident. She stole the and, shoes, yeah. And, and, you know, and I mean, I'll go on and on about this if you want, because like, if you actually read the books and you get into it, you know, Dorothy is a 19th, late 19th century, you know, um, conglomerate of what a middle-aged man thinks a woman should be. And none of the things that happen in the first book, I mean, she shows courage. Uh, she doesn't give up. She, she, she has a lot of personal values in her I like like the book little women each one of them has great character great character but at the end of the day their fate is determined by something from without and <laughs> I don't know there's a message there that that messes with me sometimes I'm like okay <laughs> what's the point of a good character if it's just shit's gonna happen <laughs> you know but I but that could also just be poor story structure um well, that's why I enjoyed Wicked so much. Because have you read Wicked? Oh, I've read I've, and I've seen it many times. You know, Nicole Parker, who you were actually performed with in Sentinels, was Elphaban Broadway for for a long time. Incredible! You should look. You should look that up. She does a really good job. She was so good. I think she was the best. I gotta say, I saw it in Tennessee at the T-Pack. Not to get off topic, but I. I went with my then boyfriend and I sobbed the whole time. And he's like, why are you crying? I'm like, cause I'm Alabama. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I it, it's lovely. I mean, normally I don't like deconstructionism, but I do like that. You know, yeah, because it, it, it did actually explore the idea of like, look, you know, evil is relative. Yes. That's what I loved about it. I, I think that we are given this idea, as you know, you're a storyteller. We're given this idea that, there, there is good and there is evil, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, but even when they explore that in children's entertainment, like Frozen or something like that, I haven't seen it. That. Still, it's, it still never questions the sims, the system. I mean, the nice thing about Wicked was it questioned the system, right? Sure. Uh, but you know, at the end of it, just put somebody else in charge of the system, which is the American bullshit, you know, capitalist way. It's like, hey, if you don't like the system, let's put somebody who looks and sounds like you in charge of the system, and then you win. <laughs> you know, you're, you're still poor. You're still miserable. You're still fat. You still don't have health care. But don't you feel better now? But now I mean, you have an avatar that you can pretend yeah. to be. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So and if you don't have that, I mean, it feels great. But if you actually take a step back, you realize that, you know, there are no American stories about, you know, the system being defeated. Mm. There used to be in the 40s and 50s. There were films made like that all the time. There were books written about that all the time. Heinlein and Asimov and all these great books about the systems. We talked about Heinlein. Uh, he yeah. was my grandfather's. Reason. Yeah, we yeah. did. Yeah. So wacky. But now you can't find a piece of media that says the system doesn't work. 
I mean, the, I guess the Matrix is probably the bit, the best one that says the system is wrong. But then it's aliens doing it to us. And if only we could go back to the way it was before, you know, when you know all this shit was still wrong. You know? um, and you know, don't think for a second that you know it, it's not quite laid out in those terms. But you know, media companies know what they're doing. They're not. You know, at the end of the day, they have to sell Happy Meals. That's what they want to do. They don't want you to question Happy Meals. For sure. It's, uh, what was that movie? They Live? The, the glasses? Oh, yeah. John Carpenter, probably the last, the, the last great American iconoclast filmmaker. You know, everybody else is doing personal identity. He was the only guy out there saying, yeah, the system blows. Of course, you know what? He remade a film, uh, The Thing, that is, this is totally apropos of nothing. He remade a film uh, called The Thing that has unfortunately overshadowed the far better original version called uh, The Thing from Outer Space that was made in the 50s by um, Howard Hawks. He produced it. And Howard Hawks, as you know, invented the screwball comedy and was one of the greatest action directors ever. And in the 50s, it was absolute suicide for a serious artist in Hollywood to do science fiction. It was low-budget shit, you know. So he produced a <laughs> thing from another world, but he clearly directed it. And it's, it, it's one of the greatest films ever, not just in terms of the characters and the, uh, and the overlapping dialogue and, and the, the brilliance of how it doesn't feel low budget, but there, it was a clash of ideas. It was a clash of ideas. It was about trying to understand the, un, the unknown versus trying to just destroy it and keep your you, things the way they are. Um, there was a character in there who was basically an anti-communist in 1950. He's a scientist who's like, we need to understand each other. We need to know each other. We have to, you know, you're, and no, the army, <laughs> but the fact that he managed to work that into a movie <laughs> was brilliant. I mean, I'm sorry. Total. We totally went off. No, I love it. I love it. I, I really adore old movies. I'm a big fan. 1930s, 1940s. Hey, if you want to, one day we can sit down and just talk about the greatest films of each decade. Uh, Steven Spielberg once told me that 95% of everything you need to know about movies was locked down by 1939, the greatest year in movie history. And everything we've done, and he's talking about one of the most famous directors, uh, influential directors in the world. He's like, everything we've done since then is just screwing around with the 5% that's left. Uh, you know, it was like by 1929, they had 80% of it. Then sound came in. Ten years later, they had it nailed. And if like, you know, and those are the films you should study. If you can just get past the outrageously offensive content. <laughs> sure, of course. The content is certainly problematic in, uh, yes. But it's fascinating to watch the boundaries they're pushing back then. I've oh, watched yeah. some movies. I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe they're getting away with this in the 30s. What's happening? Well, uh, well, Scorsese calls them smugglers. If you worked in the system and you managed to get this content in, you were a smuggler. People didn't realize you were doing it. Uh, I love Scorsese's documentary about this stuff. Um, Ooh, I have to watch that. I haven't. I don't know about that. You've never seen Scorsese's uh, uh, um, A Personal Journey Through American Film? No, I <gasps> need to see this. You will love it. It is. I mean, seriously, I watch it like every three months all right it's just fun it's just him telling the story of all these great films oh that he, he loved to watch when he was a kid and he stops like in the 70s when he started making his films 
But uh, yeah, it's it's a stunningly good documentary about filmmaking. Oh. But remember, again, to go back to the fact that the personal story of the artist shouldn't matter. The personal, you know, John Ford struggles with alcoholism on the set have nothing to do with the journey of an artist from something like Stagecoach to um, The Searchers. The Searchers is a condemnation of racism that he made in the middle of the 50s and hid it in John Wayne so you, so people wouldn't realize it. That's ironic, okay, yeah. considering. Yeah, yeah and, and he was, you know, he was a closeted drunk. I mean... I mean, John cared. Wayne being in a movie like... Because John Wayne, obviously, oh, yeah. had yeah, I mean, you know, John Wayne wasn't a simple guy either. He mm-hmm. was hiding stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not making him a hero. I'm no, just saying. no, I'm just saying that it's an irony of... That, that oh, yeah, he, he was a, f- a fundamental anti-communist. But, you know, you don't know how it's he felt about it. also racist and anti-Semitic. Yes, yes. Um, and But he was an actor, you know, that Ford was using as a vehicle, if that makes sense. Um, it, but it doesn't matter that Ford himself had all these other problems. You don't need to know about Howard Hawke's horrible childhood. I mean, Frank Capra, the greatest preferred... Pre- Prefer? The greatest champion of the American dream, as a dream, you know, the American fantasy, was an Italian immigrant who used to get the living crap beat out of him on street corners trying to deliver newspapers every day to make a living to help his starving family eat. Do you need to know that to, to, to like, it's a wonderful life? Does that, doesn't that get in the way? You know, I mean, uh, is the... But do you think that there is a point in time where somebody is taking in greatness, taking in beauty and and incredible poetry and ideas, and we all want to see ourselves in something. We all want to, even though we talked about at the beginning about how, oh, there's this weird division, like, oh, you can't be this thing if you haven't had this experience. And yet we've all had these experiences. And so when we but learn yeah, that path, that's good art. See yourself in the art, not in the artist. See yourself in the art, mm-hmm. not the artist. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Um, I mean, that's, that's what he was doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's probably the best thing we've, we've said is like, see if you need to see yourself and you should, because artists are trying to get you to actually the emotional point where you see yourself in somebody else. I mean, okay, the point of Sentinels is to take all the crap that's going on in our society with, with, the, with the corporate overstep and the horrible racism that is just being used to destroy us and stick it in a science fiction context that's far enough away that you can see yourself in them. You can, you can see it. You know, it's, the idea is to separate it enough that you're not going to have your immediate tribal midbrain reaction to it. But all art does that. <laughs> All art is trying to do that. Um, that's why the internet is in no way art. All art is trying to get you to separate from from your. It's trying to get you to see yourself in another character, parts of yourself. Do you think you knew this when you were the college student studying computers and and art at the time, and knowing that you had this this thing that you had to accomplish in order to make your dad happy, but also this part of you that you wanted to accomplish to make you happy. Happiness never entered into it. Um, no, I, obviously when I was a college student, I was an idiot. When I was a high school student, I was an idiot. And when I was 
you know, out here trying to make a living at Disney. I was an idiot. I mean, I've always been an idiot and I have no freaking idea. You know, I mean, I, I, you got out of college and you were like, I'm going, I'm heading to LA. Is that, was that the moment that you? No, I mean, it was a little more complicated than that. Um, because everything is, I mean, it, poetry and stories compress time, which is why they're not good examples for really living life. You know, that's why books are better. <laughs> they don't leave everything out. Um, I got out of college with an art degree that was, he says, and I was bouncing around Chicago and I basically, you know, moved to downtown Chicago. I got a very pretty girlfriend. I was making a living as a graphic designer artist slash, you know, so that was a success story. You know, I was basically doing speaker support lectures and flying around the country and doing boat shows and shit. But, you know, everybody's like, ooh, what's a successful artist? And I was living in the south side of Chicago. And, um, God, this is going to be another one of those dramatic stories. And, um, you know, I, you know, my life was laid out for me. Like every other big dumb son of a bitch who ever grew up in Chicago, I was going to move to Rush Street. And I was, you know, hang out in the bars with my, hot girlfriend and you know have adventures and then eventually move to the north side or the you know the west side suburbs and probably you know you know just keep doing what i was doing and put some money away and have barbecues and get a boat to go on the lakes and drink with my friends on the weekend and i had it all you know laid out you know couldn't be whiter and i had a near-death experience <laughs> sorry oh boy let's go and, and there there are details of it i cannot get into but um, I, there was still that part of me that was just fighting everything, and I wasn't happy, and there was something missing, and I was looking around, and though I couldn't have articulated it in these terms back then, life had no meaning, and the life I saw stretching out in front of me felt meaningless. And I think maybe I was, my, it was because of my father's journey that I, I, I could see that. What the hell am I doing with my life? Why, why aren't I an artist? You know, why am I letting other people tell me that what I'm doing is art when I absolutely know it isn't? You know, is it because I hate myself so much because of all the shit I've done? And the answer was yes. Was it, you know, because I've always thought I was worthless and stupid and unworthy of any kind of, you know, like, yes. Do I think I'm worthless and stupid now? Yes. I'm, I'm worse off now than I was before all that because of all the shit I've been involved in. I can't live like this. You know, I, I mean, seriously, you know, like I said, my best friend had committed suicide not too many, about a year and a half before. And I was like, well, I, I mean, maybe Cal was right. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe just the least harmful thing I can do to the world is just stop. Um, you know, and by the way, I was injured, which always makes it harder because you're in pain and you can't think straight. You were injured because why? Well, again, I, there's really stuff. Oh, that, okay, got it, got it. Sure. I mean, this is these are these are things that I don't want anyone to be able to piece together with headlines or anything, right? Yeah. So, um, so you know, I got back to Chicago and I, I wrote a little bit about this in the thing. I was like, and it was like I just wandered around for like a week, just in this fog, just like you know, this. This can't be a life, you know, you know the boat. It's the beer, the bars, the hanging out, the pretty white. Really? Is that, you know, even if I, you know, never, I mean, I was, I'll never get involved in crime again. You know, great. Do I want to, and it was like, I can't do it. So I made a deal with God. 
I'm like, I'll tell you what, God, let's, let's make this deal. Um, I'm going to be an artist from this point on. I don't know exactly what that means yet, but I'm going to do it. I've read books on artists. I understand that it is about more than just making a living. It is about more than having some executive who wouldn't know art if it, you know, came up and peed in his ear, call you an artist. It, it's not about your job. It's not about any of the, these things that Hollywood pretends, you know, being the word artist is, you know, they misuse it terribly. I, I'm going to be an artist tomorrow. If at the end of the day, I haven't been an artist, I'm coming home. But if at the end of the day I have, I'd like to do it again. And I lived like that for years. <laughs> is, that when and, you, is that when you decided to go to LA? Yeah. yeah. No, like, like two days later, I was, I was in, I was in my car and I was heading for LA. And you, I didn't want to go to LA. You, I hated the idea of LA, but you stayed, you stayed in your car, right? You were homeless or how, what? Yeah. I, I was, I, there was another guy with me and we stayed in cars and we stayed on beaches, but mostly we lived in cars. Sometimes we would find relatives, take them in. I mean, again, everything is a story. He had a relative who ran a cult in Azusa. We stayed with him for a while. I saw a cult horrific in a things. Zoo? Is that what you said? Azusa. Azusa. I don't know what that is. It's a town. Oh, California. okay. Got it. I thought maybe not that was our, the name of a, a cult something. No, 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 it's, no, it's not too far from that's Covina. It's a, a great name for a cult, Azusa. Azusa, no. <laughs> it was, no, it was a, a Catholic religious thing, church, and they were going to take us in and let us stay with them, but it turned out it was a crazy cult. It was a weird compound, and, you know, they, they were abusing people, and, you know, again, no matter what I did, I always ended up in this situation where I'm just surrounded by violence and abuse. I don't know why. Um, well, maybe because I was wandering around without any money in the streets of LA, and, and you know, we, we survived it, you know, um, you know, I had a couple of, you know, bad experiences with the illness that, you know, was life threatening and stuff like that, but we survived. And eventually I got a, you know, a job making a buck 50 a drawing. What was uh, your first job as an artist then? Quote unquote. Uh, I was doing cleanup uh, for an interactive uh, company that made interactive entertainment discs before the internet and stuff like that. And I was doing cleanup and I didn't know what cleanup was. I mean, I didn't go to animation school. I didn't know what any of these things were. And um, I would make a buck fifty a drawing. And sometimes the drawings were so bad it would take all day. So on a good day, I made enough money to put enough gas in the car to get home to where we were staying in Azusa. Uh, on a bad day, we just parked in the alley. Was he an animator as well, or trying to be an animator? Yeah, yeah. I don't know actually what happened to him. I, we we lived together for a while, but you know, eventually we, you know, um, we stopped uh, hanging out. I never really heard from him again. But um, we were both artists from Dekel, from NIU, and uh, we were just struggling. And, uh, you know, it's in my nature to be dead, dissatisfied with not doing art. I don't think doing cleanup on children's entertainment things, you know, is particularly artful. What is cleanup so, for those that don't know? It's tracing. Uh, it's, you take a, real, a drawing that's terribly off model and you trace it so it looks like, you know, the particular duck or the particular monkey or the particular, you know, tree that it's supposed to be and you make sure it's consistent for all the drawings so when it moves and everything like that it doesn't morph around um you know and for a while my my, my deep need to to be an artist translated into getting promotions i wanted i did, couldn't didn't want to be clean up i wanted to be an animator i didn't want to be an animator i wanted to be the storyboard artist i want to be the storyboard artist i want to be the director and you know it was after spending years of doing that this goes back to your question like did i know you know, after years of being tricked by the system into wasting time and producing crap, I finally stopped. <laughs> I said, I'm leaving. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do something better. And, and you've of course, worked every for time, Disney for a long time. 
Yes, and I apologize to the world for that. <laughs> I apologize to every little girl who was tricked by that crap. <laughs> I apologize to every, you know, young artist who thinks that that's something to aspire to. It, it was, um, I mean, it, I'm sorry. I'm just, I, 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 this is the place I'm at now as I've hit a certain age. Uh, you can make entertainment, but you don't have to make it so it's so evil. You can make children's entertainment. You can make animated films. There are animated films out there. you know, And you don't have to try to change the world with them. But you don't have to, to embrace the stereotypes so tightly. You don't have to reinforce the shit that's going wrong. You can just tell a nice fantasy story about a real person, about a character who's interesting. And you can go on their journey with them. And you can experience it. And you can feel it. And you can get all the satisfaction out of it. You don't have to throw all that crap on it and you know don't for a second believe it's any better now than it was you know when snow white was going on uh actually snow white was probably better it's probably one of the best <laughs> you know but um but uh, you know it i'm sorry i it, you know it's it's not just disney disney's just the one i spent the longest time at and i, I just you know i could not you know, I could not believe we were making the same film over and over again, slightly less well, with the same kind of horrible. You know, I, I don't even think it was intentional. I just think that the kind of person who ends up um, going to Disney and, be, and and climbing the ladder and becoming part of that entertainment model has so much of this stuff internalized that they can't see it. Um, again, the point of an artist being to step outside constantly to see it. And I wish they wouldn't use the word artist so much. What gave you the the jumping off point to realize then? Was it just sheer frustration to say, yeah, I, I mean, want to write uh, and create myself? No. I mean, yes, no. The thing about this is, and tell me if this feels familiar to you, is it's never these moments. It's always just a long period of misery, and you can't quite identify where that misery is coming from. And slowly it gains clarity. But you have you have duties. I had a family to take care of. I had a wife. I, my wife was sick. You know, I, I, I you know I have duties. I, I have to do the right thing. I have to be a man. I have to provide. I have to take care of my children, show them kindness, and make sure that they're never exposed to anything harmful or violent ever. I've got I've got to be a good father. I've got to be a good man. And that's true but on the other hand a lot of that is the same kind of shit they used to use on us in the gang to get us to do stuff we shouldn't be doing you know maybe you know being a man and being i'm saying man just because of me you could you know swap gender swap this and maybe being a woman or being a man or being a citizen or being good maybe i'm accepting other people's definitions of what that means maybe the thing I should be doing is producing art of value, trying to make entertainment that isn't harmful. You know, maybe, um, maybe, 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 maybe I should change the way I'm looking at this. You know, um, one of the terrible things, I guess, about being a human being is the fact that, you know, you can, I can go through the experiences I went through in my youth and realize that I was being manipulated emotionally and psychologically and not realize the same thing is happening to me now in a completely different context. You know, is it so bad to not be rich? You know, I mean, you know, I, it's a cliche, but 
not going to live forever, whether I'm rich or not. But, you know, um, if, if being rich means I can't do good work, I mean, You you met Steven Spielberg and worked with Steven Spielberg, and that's somebody who does his art and is rich. Was yeah. it, when you well, explain that because uh, it's kind of a funny story, I think, of when you discovered. Well, no, I mean I don't know him that well. I mean, no, I no, but, but you said you know I sort of turned around and there he was, you know. Oh, the, the fact that I well I went to actually interview at Amblin uh, with a guy named Phil Nibbling. And I walked into a room and everybody in the room, except for Phil Nibbling, always wore a scarf, I don't know why, uh, had a, a beard and long hair and a baseball hat. Everybody. I mean, they were all sitting around this room. And um, <laughs> I was like, I, I, I'm not, I wasn't a film student. I was from the Midwest. You know, I could tell you the various, you know, brand, you know, the various kinds of corn we used to feed cows, but I, I couldn't tell you, you know, you know, this Academy Award winner from that Academy Award winner. I didn't grow up in that world. So uh, I walked in and I was desperate for a job. You know, we were about to get evicted. And uh, I went to show Phil my portfolio, and I <laughs> and I was showing him my portfolio, and I was laying stuff out. And he kept saying, "We don't have a job. We don't have a job. We don't have a job." I, I kind of like talked my way in there. And this guy next to him with a beard and a baseball hat, and long hair, you know, kept grabbing my portfolio and sliding it over in front of him, looking at it while I was talking to Phil. And I'm like, "Hey, Phil, I got this." And you see him doing this, and doing that. And then this guy would take it, and I'd be like, "But I did that, did that, did that, did that." And I'm like desperately trying to get Phil. Phil's just kind of smirking, and I'm like trying to get Phil to like. I'm like, "Excuse me, just I'm just." Gonna take the portfolio and I'd slide it back and you to fill it. And I'd go, but, but, but I see this one over here and I did this. And I would be doing it again. And then the guy would take it and <laughs> start through it. And he did it like three times and I was desperate. So finally I was like, I'm sorry, are you an animator? And the guy looked at me and said, no. And I said, then give me this. <laughs> I kept going and it was Steven Spielberg. And he gave me, he made me a job. I love that story so much. I, it was, I was so dumb. <laughs> it turns out he's a tremendously nice guy who thought that was really funny. And he actually made me a spot on the film, but he actually uh, took some small amount of time out of his very busy day. And I probably, and I understand he does this all the time. I don't think he'd ever remember me. And I also, I often, you know, people are like, oh, well, you know, Steven Spielberg. I'm like, Steven Spielberg never used my correct name twice. You know, it was always Mark or Melvin. <laughs> he did not know who I was. I mean, no impression on him whatsoever. But, um, he was incredibly nice and did teach. Uh, he at least got my head in the right direction about what it meant to be a director and an artist. Oh, which was the first uh, film you directed? Or first story you directed? Uh, let's see. I made. I did a couple of uh, things for Warners uh, for their online service. Um, those were tough. Those are difficult circumstances. You know, it's when you get your chance to direct the first time, unless you're the rich child of somebody, it's always far from ideal. <laughs> it's always far from ideal. Um, you know, if you're going to be poor, you're going to spend a lot of time struggling. Um, but uh, the one I was, uh, I was directing uh, El Superbisto and uh, the, the Haunted World of El Superbisto for Rob Zombie. And uh, the wines, the IDT who was making that film, Roman, was desperate to get the Weinstein's who had just, you know, broken off from uh, uh, Miramax and had like a trillion dollars, you know, one of those boondoggle loans, you know, it's like the Katzenberg's, you know, software company now. And they had all this money to throw around and they were desperate to get them to come in and invest and produce and you know, be part of their, their, you know, later to be quickly aborted uh, feature film division. And the Weinsteins came in, they just hated everything they were doing, except for Rob, you know, 
you know, the El Supervisto. So like, you know, Harvey and those guys were like, well, who's, who made this one? And they pointed at me and, um, they, uh, hired me to do the hoodwink stuff. And again, talk about not being ideal. You know, I've got my first chance to do an independent, you know, feature film. It's, I, you know, the story is about, you know, actually a young girl whose duty is to do good, to be a superhero kind of, you know, to make the world a better place. The entire plot was, you know, she drove it, you know, she actually made things happen. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I'm like, wow, this is the dream. And of course I'm doing it for the biggest monster in the world. And so I have to spend most of my time protecting my staff from him. Uh, it was appalling. It was a horrific experience. You had an awareness yeah. then at that time who Harvey was. I know. I mean, at the time it was, he was like, most, everybody in the world was kissing his ass up and down. And remember most of the people who worked for him were women too. So like, there was this huge cover or the fact that what he was doing. Uh, covers the wrong word for what's the word um, accomplices is that a better word yeah so you know my two direct bosses with him uh, uh, were women who were like you know you know it was all evil beyond words and if you I, it's too long it's so evil and so wrong it's not worth glossing over because I think that gives people the wrong idea it is the same system that works today in many other places exactly and the layers of how it works and who are the front men for it or front women for it and how this all works and how this was kept deniable and everything is, is not a new system and it's not a system that's not being used now, but it, it's, I don't want to blow it off and cartoon it, but maybe was it because of my, my background? Um, I knew there was something wrong with Harvey the first moment I met him. Needed the job, wanted to be a director. Didn't know how close I'd have to work with him, but there was something off about that guy. And I'd seen that in a lot of guys coming up. I'd seen that in a lot of guys. Um, it's the way their eyes worked. You can see there's something missing. And I just, instead of being curious about it, I had learned to be really, 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 you know, careful about guys like that. Cause you know, this is the guy who's going to pull a knife on you. This is the guy who's going to order somebody else to do something terrible to you. You can spot those people after a while. And yeah. And, uh, you know, once we had to go to peninsula, uh, the peninsula, cause he used to rent the room at the, the peninsula down the Beverly Hills to be a big shot. And we'd all have to go down there and, you know, everybody work up and have to go down there and he rented all these rooms. And it's where a lot of this horrible stuff happened. I never saw any of that, but, um, One, the, I forget her name, but there was a, a girl who was producing it for us, and she wanted to come down too. And I was just like, no. And she thought I was trying to just keep her from having contact with Harvey, and it was a career move and stuff like that. And I, you know, I was like, I, how do you say I'm just getting a vibe off this guy, and I just want to go scope this out the first time? <laughs> so we went there. They took me up to his room in the peninsula. I'm sitting in his room. Uh, you know, there's fruit and food out there like that. And this would be so, and he comes out stark naked, sits on the bed and uh, wants to go over script notes with me. So I sat there on the bed next to him. We went over the script notes. I got the hell out. It's, 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 it's good to be able, you know, like it's, it's good to be able to like make people understand that this isn't going to go the way you want to go. But you can see I, I was very lucky that I could be that guy. I mean, not a lot I mean, you know, if you're a five foot two, you know, 19 year old woman in that position, that that could go a whole different way. But remember, his whole thing wasn't about, well, I'm, I'm guessing 
but my my guess is that it wasn't about sex; it was about power. And he, he was getting off as much and making me sit there while he was <laughs> as, he, as he would, you know, sure. doing anything. And rape is about power, so control. Yeah. But, you know, I was lucky. I mean, you know, I, and so, like, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, in lots of rooms with him. We never saw him naked again, which is good. Um, he was in a bathrobe when he came out, I think. I think eventually it just opened, as I recall. I can't remember the details. So those things where it's like, what is happening? You're like. You blank it out. You're like, it's just like overloading. You have no idea what the, Like, is this happening? Um, and you get to punch at him? Hmm? that you punched at him or well we had a fa- we had a famous physical encounter at the end of the film uh we were finishing up a film in a, in a famous place uh and uh my dad had just died and he had died during the delay of releasing the film because you know basically you know harvey was terrible at his job you know he kept blowing all the money he'd lose money on almost everything he'd lie to people take their films and you know they would give him half the money for the distribution and he would spend it on other stuff and he had spent he, had, he was broke he couldn't get any more money and uh, he had just spent every penny he had for all his films on quentin tarantino's uh, latest release and therefore then, then didn't release any of our films and while we were waiting for harvey to get around to releasing our film you know uh, my dad died so my dad never got to see my first movie um and then so we're sitting there i'm like i understand it Okay. Again, everything's a story. Sorry. So we were finishing the film at a particular um, finishing house that isn't there anymore, but it was very expensive, you know, the top of line Hollywood stuff, you know, millions of dollars of equipment in every room, you know, uh, Academy Award winning mixers sitting everywhere, you know, all this stuff. Uh, people are constantly offering you drugs. <laughs> and like, it's just, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. But um, uh, I thought... I had been having kidney stone problems. Uh, the doctor told me I had kidney stones and uh, I was trying to get this movie done to get it out. And I went to see the doctor. He said, no, it's kidney stones. You're fine. Don't worry about it. Turns out I burst an appendix and um, I didn't know. So I'm spending weeks working with Harvey with a burst appendix, uh, really, really in a lot of pain. And um, you're lucky you didn't die from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's not a miracle, though. It turns out a certain number of people have burst appendix don't die right away. You know, um, it takes a while. You know, it wasn't like completely burst. It burst a little, and it was just leaking poison into my body, and I was having, you know... It's just a flesh wound. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, honestly, you know, you, you have my life, you kind of develop a tolerance for pain. <laughs> you just don't really notice it the way other people seem to. Um, I think I'm a big baby, but other people, you know, seem to think that I'm weird that I, you know, I, it takes me so long to go see a doctor, but, um, anyways, doctor told me kidney stones. I was just waiting for it to pass. And, you know, I was sweating and feverish like you, like you get with that. And I was having, uh, it was tough and he was being, you know, you've heard the stories about Harvey and editing and Harvey and Vienna movies and stuff like that. And at one point he turned around and he talked some real shit about my dad. And we went at it. <laughs> Luckily, his bodyguard happened to be looking the other way, so I got him first, and then I went after Harvey, and he and I, he and I went at it. And the thing about Harvey and I, though, is, is that there was a level we communicated on, because he is a tough son of a bitch from a bad part of town. You know, that guy can throw a punch. At least he could back then. Uh, and I, he can take a punch. I mean, he's a tough guy. And, um, you know, I'm sure in his mind he's a victim who's been abused, too, you know? And, um, you know, we had a famous physical altercation that damaged a lot of very expensive equipment. And then like an hour later, it was like, fine, no big deal. We were just in another room. And apparently having directors attack him was not an uncommon experience. It apparently happened a lot because everyone's like, oh, don't worry about it. (laughs) 
So, I mean, it's, so like I tell stories like this, I, I, I try to tell it not a lot because it scares the crap out of people. They're like, you know, they're like, you, they don't want to be around someone who's had these experiences because they're afraid of you. They, they don't know what you're going to do next. And I understand that. So I just shut up. Seems to me, though, that you have actually quite the measured temper. Well, in context, yeah, I in context. <laughs> yeah, I have to have a burst appendix, uh, a film being held hostage, and Harvey has to make fun of my newly dead father for me I to lose mean... my temper. I would think that's a pretty high. <laughs> I think the sisters would be proud of you. Yeah, I was like, you know, I think that that actually, but you know. You know, I mean, especially now, it's just not, it, I, I'm not proud of that kind of stuff. And I don't tell it to be entertaining. It's just, you have to understand what a vile human being he is. He could, he can drive, you know, that story took something away from me, not him. What he does to people took something away from them, not him. And, you know, who you are the rest of your life is the person that Harvey got you to be. For a little while but that's that's the point of violence that's the point of gangs that's always what it is it, they're taking it's not a mutual destructive impact they're taking something away from you you'll never have back if you fall to that level if you get involved and you're weak it doesn't feel like weakness but if if, if you're weak then they're going to take that away from you i can never not be the guy who lived that life and I don't want to be that guy. I don't want people to see that guy. I don't want my children to look at that guy. You know? So that's the thing about violence in general. It, it diminishes the best parts of you. And you can either embrace it and just continue to slide. Or you can kind of be ashamed of it and try to, try to stop it. But is there happening. something yeah. to be said about the because you have touched the darkness of the world that you can have empathy? For I would hope that, that there's other ways to develop empathy. Sure, but not to that to that depth. There's I was thinking of a question when you were talking about, you know, being a writer and a director, and I thought, oh, I wonder how being a director shaped being a writer. Because I imagine it's a you know, it's a different way of looking at things. To be a writer, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing, and now I'm a director, and suddenly I would think that the way I see things as a director shapes informs how I am as a writer from that point on because you understand maybe how actors have to be and, and, and how story has to be told. So I think yeah. that in, as far as being in the darkness, that in order no, to, uh, and then get to the light, I, for a I metaphor that is, you know, dug into the I, ground. I, but I, sw I swear to God, I'm, I'm, and I haven't done this, but I'm, 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 I'm going to just have to disagree because I have met people with tremendous empathy who have never given up parts of themselves. I have, I have met honestly good people. Uh, some of them in, in the Catholic church, which I know is people are like, well, they're all evil. No, some of them are saints, you know, um, most of them aren't, be careful. Um, you know, I have seen beauty and wisdom and gentleness and empathy in human beings who have not crawled into that sewer. As a matter of fact, I think if you've experienced violence, you're, you're far less likely to be empathetic. I think it, that actually burns out of you. You, you become you're completely self-pitying and come to the center of the universe very quickly. 
I, I see. I can't agree with that because I think it depends on the person. I experienced violence as a child, and I don't consider myself. I know that that exists inside of me somewhere. That if I had to draw upon it, I could access it if I needed it. For example, like you say, walking down a dark alley. However, that is not the lens that I see the world through. And I don't know that I am so different as I'm speaking with you. It seems like you have chosen, even though you have this that resides within you, it's a part of your story. I know you hate that. <laughs> that it isn't how you choose to function in the world and see the world and tell your story. I mean, this is, comes back a little bit to what we were talking about in the very beginning, though, doesn't it? I mean, it's, 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 is it about the art or the artist? I mean, you maybe would have become the compassionate, empathetic, interesting, deeply authentic person you are now without the violence. Maybe the violence, or maybe you decided to become this person as an act of will, regardless of the violence. Or maybe the violence pushed you in that direction. We don't know. And because we can't know, that's why I think, you know, you should see yourself in the art, not necessarily in the artist. It's a great philosophical question. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, because, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely to, to justify misery and violence because it creates such great people. But you know what? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just fucking misery and violence. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I get maybe. that. I get that. In Maybe spite there's of, no actual use for it. It's the in spite of, not the because of. And and I'm more on the in spite of team. I think that I do yeah. think that people have choices and some people don't know that they have choices. Do you know because you, you use the term weak and I think that that starts getting into a bit of a of a oh, well you're weak because you couldn't pull out of this and you're strong because you could, but I think even that has its gray scale. There's philosophers. <laughs> you hate me so much. No, 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 no. I like it. No, no. I was trying to. The, what you just described. There's a philosopher from the Middle Ages called Boisma. God, I can't remember his name. And and he's his whole philosophy is about um, you know God. You know the, the the Middle Ages version of good and evil and fate and why people are good or evil and how God sees the universe and everything like that uh, is all, you know, it was best expressed in this philosopher stuff. I can't remember his name. Which okay, is Google it. Um, it can take two seconds. Just Google it real quick. My phone is downstairs. Would you have your phone? Oh, no, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not Googleable. You're not Googleable. Okay. But um, it's because I got you on. I'm not Googleable. But the, um, the, the Middle Ages Catholic philosophy was that all evil serves a purpose and it is the greater purpose of God's will. And that the end, because we can't, we don't live, we live in linear time and God doesn't, we can't judge good and evil. Um, but it exists as a part of his design of his will to create the ultimate end to the universe, which is a good thing by definition, because God says, it. well, okay, that's a great way of justifying not cleaning up your streets, right? So, I mean, but what you're talking about, the philosophy of suffering, uh, creating good, was you know the overwhelming philosophy you know for the through the Middle Ages and through the Renaissance, and much of the greatest art in humanity has been has has been about that you know you, and Buddhism great, as well. Hmm? The Buddhist belief that's yeah great suffering. yeah like yeah. suffering good, good comes through suffering yeah uh, epic poetry I mean some of the best epic poetry you know um, I I think at this point in my life having come through everything I've come through and having 
experience with good and evil. Um, I'm from both sides. I don't, I don't believe it. <laughs> I think evil is just freaking evil. I think uh, evil is unnecessary. And, and, you know, you don't need to torture a child to make them into a good person. And, and the reason I mention this is because um, as a father, without realizing it, I had been programmed to toughen my sons up because you want them to be safe. You love them. You want them to be safe. You're not always going to be there to take care of them. So you toughen them up. Yeah, but isn't that abuse? Isn't that abuse? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it, it's hard. It's hard to look back at my father and think things like this because I know how much he loved me. Um, but maybe evil is just evil and bad is just bad and none of it's necessary. Maybe kindness, maybe kindness as the default approach to everything actually is how the world should work. I don't know. I didn't always think that, but I do now. I would like to think that it is how it should work. I just don't think it's how it does work. Oh, of course not. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Let's uh, let's tact for a second and move over to the the reason why I even know you. Okay. Because this is this episode is going to come out on Thursday, and right now there is a serial Tuesday. Podcast. Tuesday. This, Tuesday. No, this show comes out Thursday. Oh, you're th okay. Sorry, mine comes out on Tuesdays. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. So this show will come out Thursday, but it I I've been talking about your show on this show for the past few weeks in the preamble. Because you and I met, you wrote and directed a serial podcast called Sentinels, and I had a blast doing it, and it was with phenomenal talent that really, for me, experiencing that was a whole other level in and of itself. We, we, you touched on the story of it a little bit, but why don't we dive in just a, just a hair more for those okay. listening? And to Good. tell them way, where to find it and all this kind of stuff. So. Yeah, way more comfortable talking about art in that context. Yeah. Um, so, what is for a couple of years now, I've been working on a couple of projects that I'm, I'm again, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm forcing myself to try to, like, I've got, I want to do good work. And, you know, there's two ways to do it. You can actually, you know, go to, through the studio system and make all the compromises and, you know, do what they want you to do. And then at the end of it, say, oh, well, I made it a little slightly better. And I've done that. I've done that on shows. I've taken shows that, you know, where they wanted Penelope Pitstop to be, you know, a bubble brain. And I turned her into an action hero. And I feel like, oh, well, that did some good. You know, any children, who, any young women who see that will actually not be exposed to the bubble brain version of, of, of uh, Penelope Pitstop. Um, and so that's one way of doing it. And a lot of people take a lot of satisfaction out of that. Um, I don't as much as I used to, um, you know, uh, what they call it, you know, in infinite darkness, holding up a, holding up a candle is, is an act of courage, but getting a freaking searchlight out might be a little bit better to do it. So I, I, I started creating on my own while I was working something like that shows that I, that were, I think have better meaning, but also better drama to them, better, better action to them. They're more entertaining, but they're also avoiding all this horrible stuff. So, um, Sentinels is what 
I'd been working on it. And I, I honestly had been working on it and feeling kind of bad because I was like, wow, I'm just wasting my time here. You know, I don't want to be somebody who does this, you know, has a hobby that makes him feel better while he goes off and works on other work. And I was out with Chris Judge one day. And Chris is a dear friend of mine. Those of you who don't know who Chris Judge is, Chris was Teal on Stargate SG-1 and uh, is a very good actor and basically came out of the violence and misery of the east side of L.A. And as a black man in Los Angeles, you know, came up, through all that kind of racism and all that kind of violence and managed to get himself out because of his athletic ability that he developed. And, you know, I mean, he, I, I don't want to tell any of his stories, but we've talked. We, I mean, we met each other and we became instant friends. We could both see something in our past that we both related to. And, um, you know, he's had to make his way through Hollywood uh, as a black man in not just Hollywood, that is so racist and not just LA that is so racist and everything like that, but also um, um, he, he's not allowed to be angry. You know, it, it doesn't matter how powerful you are, you know, and I've seen this and I've been in rooms where this has happened. You know, um, if, if a black guy gets angry, <laughs> the world comes to an end. A white guy gets angry as he wants. White woman can get as angry as she wants. Mm. Not as angry, not as angry as a white guy. Yeah, I was <laughs> yeah. say, eh. but, but I mean, compare that to um, a black guy. I mean, a black guy sure. will never work again. So what sure. I'm saying is, like, uh, I mean, but let's actually examine that a little bit. The difference between sexism and racism. The white guys are going to give you shit and make you pay if you get angry at them for their crap. But if a black guy gets angry in a room, he's done. You know what I mean? So like you're on the edge of getting thrown out. For him, it's automatic. That for me, that's the most frustrating argument that I keep hearing and reading on on the social media about Black Lives Matter. It's like, well, they're being violent or they're being too loud or they're being. I'm like, yeah, motherfucker, of course they are. Why would that's that's racism? And by the way, it's the only way you noticed. Exactly (laughs) that. And people keep expecting me to say, oh no, violence is bad. I'm like. I'm all for it. Do it. Yeah, burn it the fuck down. Burn it. Out. So, yeah. um, um, but we can say that. I know. You and I can say no, that. I get Chris, it. I know. Chris would never say that. Chris but would never say because that. Because we have um, that privilege, we should be saying it. That's what I'm saying. It's like I'm not. I'm. I'm not here to speak for any person of color. But well, I mean, again, as somebody who's been exposed to a lot of violence in his life, I'm always ambivalent about it. But having said that, <laughs> you know, it wasn't. It wasn't Martin. It wasn't Martin Luther King Jr. who got the Civil Rights Act passed in the late '60s. It was, even though he was the intellectual leader of that movement, it was the Black Panthers arming and the streets going up, and white people going out and lighting shit up too. One hundred percent. Yeah, the moment they can, they can get us to think that you know, putting you know banners on our Facebook page is the same thing as change. They went and they just, they're off laughing their asses off. At the moment they got us, just, got us off the streets, they were like, yeah. They did get us. Everyone's still in the streets. It's, not everyone. But I mean, what I'm saying is like, that's what they're hoping for. That, yeah. That's the end game is to get us to do it through some sort of more, you know, non And I don't want to say nonviolent because it doesn't have to be violent. I, I just said violence is bad and I believe it. <laughs> but. <laughs> 
but, <laughs> but just, it gets shit done. <laughs> but revolutions, revolutions that are just violent right. in and of themselves, right, right, don't get anything done. But a revolution is a good thing. Right. Now, a revolution on the terms of the leaders is not a revolution. Right. It's just you're blowing off some steam. Um, but I mean, anyways, that's what Sentinels is about. I mean. It came about organically. I didn't start writing it because of what was going on. But for the last couple of years, I've, I've been like, you know, society is is structured a particular way by particular people for particular reasons. And the thing that makes it work is racism at the, at the bottom of it. Because if they can have people fighting for scraps, if they can put you guys against each other, you know, it clouds the fact that the system doesn't work. Again, you know, walk, if, if, if they can make walking to school for you a trauma, then you're not going to be, you know, noticing the fact that, you know, they've, they've moved all the regulation off capital investment to the point where people are getting rich off a pandemic. You know, I mean, it, it's things like that. Well, Sentinels isn't directly about that exactly, but it's about the future. What the idea is, is that 400 years from now, um, well, Earth falls apart uh, in 400 years before the series is set. Earth falls apart because of overpopulation, corporate greed, lack of governments having any kind of uh, response to the people or brave leadership and um, ec uh, ecological damage. And believe it or not, I wrote this four years ago. <laughs> um, and what happens is, is, is that the corporations take over because... Um, political leadership is just not a real thing anymore. And the, the corporations step in and the transglobal corporations are established and they have to feed desperate people. And because of the damage to earth, what they have to do is they have to go out into the solar system. They have to start mining, you know, they have to start getting the resources delivered back to earth to feed everybody and to clothe everybody and, and you know, and all the other things that have to go on. And so they try to colonize the, the solar system. When this is where my science background comes back, you can't do it. Elon Musk's bullshit about colonizing Mars isn't going to work. Human beings can't survive on Mars. There's not enough gravity. There's too much radiation. You don't have an electromagnetic field. It won't work. You put people on Mars, it's a long or short-term death sentence. And Mars is the most habitable thing in the solar system. <laughs> people can't survive in near-Earth orbit, much less the moon. It's a death sentence. So... Instead of terraforming the planets, like in Star Trek, the corporations realize what they have to do is genoform the people. And so they take the poor, desperate people who work for them, and they, through the Gen N program, uh, modify their genes. They splice them with you know animals, creatures, anything they do, they, they, they experiment. There's breeding programs. Millions of mutants and culls are, are made. It's it's It's... A dramatic and devastating thing but at the end of it what they've done is they've created a series of subspecies of humanity that are suited for things like continuous high g travel you know they're, they're radiation resistant they've they're they can actually go out there and do it so they send these genins these corporate employees whose genes they've patented and own out to the solar system to colonize the planets and it works they can live out there. It's not pleasant. But and then after generations, what happens is, is they manage to make the, the world's you know, comfortable enough that Terrans can go live out there. And then there's a great despair as, as, as the poor and the and, you know, like, like yeah, what happens and the xenophobia and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what happens is uh, Terrans go out there. Baselines go out there. Too, because you know the poor and the disheveled and so like looking for opportunities, looking for hope, and the solar system gets settled. 
But of course, it's chaos. It's the Wild West. And the corporations need to stay in control because without something like order, you can't have the trade routes go and you can't get the shipment and you can't enforce corporate law. And you need all the colonies have to coexist. So what they do is they create the, the sentinels. And the sentinel guard is base, is based on the Coast Guard. Of what we've got here now, and a lot of people don't know this, but the Coast Guard has existed, you know, for over 200 years and has fought in every war that America's ever been in. Um, they basically protect protect trade routes. Um, they're search and rescue. You know, when they're the only military branch of the military that will go out if they without an expectation of being able to succeed and come back and survive. Every other part of the military has to have some sort of expectation of success and survival in order to perform a mission. Coast Guard doesn't. Their motto is, we have to go out. We don't have to come back. If you call the Coast Guard, they will go, even knowing it's hopeless and they're going to die. There's no one else like that. Um, they also have, uh, they also deal with smugglers. They have um, police, limited police powers. They police ports all over the, all over the, uh, all over the world. So I thought that's what the future is going to be like. I thought corporations are going to take over. We're going to develop a, you know, a subset of, of human beings that we're going to, you know, own and exploit who are going to be able to go out there and survive. And we're not going to have Starfleet. We're not going to have spaceships that can fight huge battles. We're going to have a Coast Guard. You know, um, that space job is basically to police things and, and keep the trade routes going. So that's the world of Sentinels. And this the, the story we're involved in, the thing we did, uh, starts with um, there is a great cataclysmic tragedy that overwhelms the solar system that destroys most of the existing Sentinels who were all like every police force in the world in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, uh, who were all Terran. They enforced their code on the Genens, but they were not Genens themselves. They were a corporate police force that enforced their will. And, you know, they kept them down and they kept them exploited and all the crap you, you know, we see in the real world. And, what, uh, and they saw themselves as heroes because in many ways they were. They were rescuing people, right? I mean, it's that, that thing we talked about. So um, what happens is after this cataclysm, many of the Sentinels are destroyed. And in order to keep things rolling, in order to keep trade going, in order to keep things from falling apart, they have to integrate the Sentinel Force for the first time with Gen Ends, who are, let's face it, going to be better at this. They're built for it. And that's the story of the series. It's about this first team of young Gen Ends who are conscripted into the Force and they're put on a ship, the Phoenix, under the command of Jack Armstrong. And they have to find a way to live with each other because they've been pitted, these colonies have been pitted against each other for control for decades. They've got legitimate grievances against each other. Um, they also don't like the Sentinels. And guess what? The Sentinel Terran officers don't like them. So just like at the drama and the tragedy and the heroism that happened when we integrated the police forces in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s in America, that's the stories of the Sentinels. But it's more than that. It's more than just about the racism. It's also about the fact that the system that's created this might not be worth saving. And I showed this to Chris, and he was like, oh, my God, we have to do this. You know, this is the kind of script I never see, and this is the kind of stuff that science fiction won't touch. Most science fiction is about, you know, just protecting the system. You know, they call it, they call it revolution, but what they mean is put somebody else in charge, but they have the same system. Um, and he started encouraging me and, you know, to make it bigger, to make it work. And we decided to start, you know, pitching it around town. And we were just about to start doing that when COVID hit. So 
just like you know, I'm like I'm, I'm not going to just sit here for five months and not be an artist. So we're like, let's make it, let's make it a podcast. And he called some amazing people and Huffman, Danielle, and everybody. And uh, what a so cast! We did it. Just such a great yeah. and lovely people as well. I had so much fun working with everybody. Well, you know, it's interesting. Yes, I, I did too. I really did. But it's interesting that the people who did it did it because they liked the script. They, it's a great they, script. Yeah. It is. But, it's but, like, but, I'm not just saying. But the idea behind the script, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah, people are oppressed. And yeah, racism does work like this. And yeah, you know, this is the story of these people like trying to come to grips with this is a good story. You know, it turns out the kind of people who like those kind of stories tend to be good people. Yeah. <laughs> So the artists we got are not only great artists, but they were artists with a passion for the vision of it. And I, I was, you know, for free stuff being done. You did this too, for free stuff for people like locked in their house and doing this for free. You know, they, everybody was like above and beyond. I mean, Peter Woodward and, and his son, Charlie, and Chris Judge Jr., Chris's son, you know, who's, you know, growing up a young black man in society right now. I mean, he's, you know, you know, he's going through a lot of stuff and, they all jumped on it and gave so much of themselves. I mean, I mean, just yesterday I did do pickups with Nicole. <laughs> you know, I mean, she's like, "Yeah, fine, just call me at home and I'll do more." Uh, you know, Elena did hours and hours and hours of of, of, of stuff to try to get, get her performance where she wanted because she loved it so much, and also because you know we had to get her a good microphone. So we did it twice with a bad microphone. We had to redo it, but. Uh, it, it was. It's been an. It was one of those experiences that makes you just appreciate the fact that you really should just do art. If you just say, "I'm going to do this because it's good," I'm going to do this with all of my ability. If you produce art, yes, it's informed by my. It's informed by my past and my reading and my interests. It's informed by Chris's past and his reading, his interests and the stories he's told me, and the things we worked into it together. But, you know, it's not a personal story for either one of us. It's a, it's a bigger piece of art. It's the best we could do. And if you do that, people come. People show up. People love that. You know, it doesn't, you know, there's this thing out there that's got to be crap to be popular. It's truth of the capital T. I talk about it all the time. People recognize, they feel it deeply when they hear truth. It's something that, that viscerally they respond to. Even yeah, if it's subconscious. People, yeah, and some people aren't going to like it, and their their cognitive distance distance that's keeping them alive because you know you're 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 actually benefiting from a system that's evil, but you can't actually admit that to yourself, and so. But it's you know, still the same. It's truth. still truth. Though. I think it still resonates as truth, and that's why it, it does. And they'll get angry and try yeah. to kill you. That's right. <laughs> so either either it you react one of two ways to truth, either with like revelation and appreciation, and it's just there's just something about it that makes you want to be there, and that you feel good, or it angers you. It angers you. I mean, people flipping out over masks. They're not flipping out over masks. <laughs> the, the mask is the thing that. The part of their brain that's trying to make America's perfect and hard work gets you somewhere and the system isn't rigged and I can trust my politicians and the truth of what they're seeing every day are coming together and, you know, the cognitive dissidence is creating I hate masks. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, so I've had a lot. Of, I've, I had a studio head. I didn't pitch him the series exactly, but I told him I was working on this thing. He practically threw me out of his office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I mean, 
you know, you, you, people react to, to art differently. But that's the, kind of the point. When I was telling my dad about this, I read the script and I was like, oh, I get to be in this thing. I'm so excited. And, and he's like, oh, tell me about it. And I told him about it. And I was like, you'd love it. Because, you know, we grew up in a, my family is, loves science fiction. That was yeah. such a big part of, of my life. And, uh, and great storytelling as well. And I said, oh, man, one of, one of my characters, I think it's like two lines, and I'm a horribly racist <laughs> creature. I mean, so racist. <laughs> no, you can't, say, you can't say racist. You're, you're, a, gen, you're a genetist. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that, I mean, isn't that the point of science fiction, though? It, it, it just gets you far enough away from it that you yeah. can actually. And Chris, you know, insisted, um, you know, I talk, we, we talked about this a lot. He, he, you know, he's playing the biggest um, prejudice earther. I, I don't want to call it racist because it's not about race. It's about genes. Right. Gen- um, what did you say? Genist? Yeah, genist. That doesn't make any sense. I but love it, he, he, he plays the biggest genist in the, in the show. I mean, his character is like the ultimate old school sensitive cop who hates these gen ends. And, um, you know, it, it, he, he was, he's laughing at me sometimes. He's like, you know, I love this character and I hate this character. And like, yeah. it's, like yeah. it's, it's wild to like how human he feels, but at the same time, he's clearly wrong. And I'm like, yeah, let's try to keep him that way. Yeah, you don't want to make him a cartoon. I'm sorry. Tell, tell people how they can find it. Uh, well, it's on Apple's. It's on uh, uh, Apple iTunes. It's on Spotify. Uh, what you do is you can either uh, do a search for Sentinels colon point of no return because this isn't actually an ongoing series this is the first pilot but point of no return so it's sentinels colon point of no return and you can um like i said it's on uh, itunes by the way and this is true of uh, hey human too if you're going to listen to a podcast please leave a review you don't know how important that is it's so important yeah. yeah, I mean, iTunes and those guys really, really go by the reviews almost more than they do the downloads. So please, 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 if, you like, if yeah. you like it, just type in the word, I like it. Yeah. Ten yeah. seconds of your time, and it makes such a, wor- a world of difference. Um, but uh, you can do it through there, you can do it through Spotify, or you can go to um, our website, which is www.sentinelspodcast.com. And that not only has the podcast itself, but it has... Uh, tri- scripts, transcripts, character bios, backgrounds, secret stories that you don't find out in the podcast. But if you actually know this stuff, like stuff resonates a lot more. Development artwork, you can see the spaceships and everything that we're describing this on. So you can go to www.sentinelspodcast.com. Yeah. Or you just mm-hmm. uh, go to iTunes. And you can listen to it also on Podbean for people that have Android phones. Android. You're right. Yeah, Podbean. You, and the same thing, Sentinels. Uh, colon point of no return and you'll end up right on the page and there are links there to all that art too so you can actually see it there yeah too. and then i have links all over the place as well and i do a link page for hey human on every episode so i'll put it up there as well so and i i'm just so thankful to it thank you for allowing me to be a part are of you it. kidding i, I mean it. I, it's so weird when somebody who donated their time and their energy and then is supportive about retweeting it and then is helping me advertise it says thank you i mean my god the word thank you for me isn't even the beginning of enough of how grateful i am to you I mean, oh no no you, and then, you should, um you're wonderful I mean, you you just you just in the last episode you just zapped jupe and it's oh, very mean oh goodness look at <laughs> look at me Jupe's the sweetest thing in the world and I she love, tried to kill him. i love you yes and i love bob 
Bob, who oh, played yeah, Bob, Bob Bledsoe, is a dear friend who played Jupe. I there was one thing that I did not cover, and I've taken. Oh, are you kidding? We've been talking for days. We're I've taken them. so much of your time, but I want to know. Oh no, no, it's not that. It's just like no one's going to sit through this. They will. <laughs> they, I think they will. Why did you run from a tiger? Oh, if you're in India. The great thing about my life is I've been all over the world. I mean, I, I literally have. I mean, it's, you know, I've heard the call to prayers and, you know, in Jordan over the desert. I've, I've been to, you know, um, the Royal City of Beijing. I've been to palaces. I've been, you know, I've been to ruins. I've been, I've been so many places. It's ridiculous. Again, just say you're going to be an artist and make choices because you're an artist and your life will be extraordinary. Not necessarily uneventful or particularly secure, but it will be extraordinary. And so like I was in India, and it turns out a lot of Indian cities, we're at the studios, the, the suburbs of Indian cities are literally carved right out of the jungle. And if you have the wrong door, you're not on the streets of, of India, which, by the way, is both heaven and hell, right? You're in a jungle. And so one day I walked out the wrong door of the studio, got lost, you know, like 10 feet from the freaking door. And I'm wandering around and I'm to this trail and I'm like, it's got to it's be a way to loop back around to get to the thing. And I look up and there's a fucking tiger. <laughs> and it looks at me and you ever had an animal look at you with absolutely no fear whatsoever? <laughs> there's a part of you, if you've never been outdoors, there's a part of you that's genetic, that's bred into, the, you know, a hundred, uh, you know, half a million years of humanity that when an animal you know, bigger than a bread box shows no fear. You instantly recognizes it. And that, you know, he just kind of like leaned forward and I was gone and I could hear him behind me the whole way. But I got, <laughs> I went back the way I came, saw this little fence, leapt over it, like ran next to the thing and then got around it. And he was just, I guess they know not to get too close to the buildings or something. But I, got, I got chased by his tiger. I couldn't tell you if he chased me three feet or 50 because I didn't stop to look. Incredible. Wow. Oh, that was just dumb. I mean, that's not even much of a story. I just walked out the wrong door. No, but I just, because you had, in this thing that I read, it said, dined with kings, drank with warlords, ran from a tiger, was chased out of a country by its military. Was yeah, the Chinese military chased me out of China. For filming, I assume? No. Oh. I, I didn't do anything wrong. I just got, I just got stuck there. Mm -hmm. And it turns out they don't like that, especially when they're... Uh, during certain times of year. So, um, yeah, the, the, I got chased out of the country. I, it's a long story, and I probably shouldn't tell it because some days I want to sell Sentinels in China. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I've, I mean, the stuff I left off that list would, I mean, at a certain point, you're like, nobody's going to believe me. <laughs> I'm just going to stop, I'm just going to stop mentioning this stuff. But uh, yeah, the Chinese, Chinese military um, was looking for me to escort me to the airport. Do you just because... I did nothing wrong, guys, and they weren't mad at me. I committed no crimes. <laughs> Don't come after him. Do you have a well, personal website? Do you have a personal yeah. Jesus? <laughs> I don't have a personal website because it should be about the art, right? Okay, got um, it. I've got an IBD page and, and a Twitter hand. You know, yeah. I'm on Twitter. I'll put all those links up there. To close, although I feel like I could talk to you four days. Not four uh, days. We have. We have. Days. We have. Sorry, everybody. Go back to your families. <laughs> Do you feel that you have, I know, I feel like I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, that that uh, deal you made with God, even though you say you don't, you don't really believe in God or you don't know or whatever. You it's, don't think, it's, an, it's an interesting dichotomy. Yes. Isn't it? like, Where I mean, are you like, here now in this present moment? You have kept up your end of the bargain. 
Well, with things like Sentinel, you see, yes. Um, often not, um, but enough. Let me put it this way. I, I've never, ever woken up and gone to work or woken up and, and done anything and not tried to do everything like an artist. Glenville Pooh wakes up every day and he's an artist. Not because of what he does, but because of the way he approaches the world, how he thinks, how he observes. How, he's always thinking about translating everything into art. I, I do that. I really do. Um, it has sometimes made life very difficult for me at, at particular studios where they really don't want artists. They just want people to sit down and shut up and do what they're told. And often I have just sat down and shut up and do what I'm told because, you know, it's like, okay, well, I agreed to do this job and I'm happy to do it. But, you know, when it comes to being willing to talk about art, uh, to always try to take the conversation to another level about art if, if it's appropriate and not annoying. Um, to work, I've never said no to a student. I've never said no to anybody who's ever reached out to me for help about art or for advice about how to do it. I've never said no to teaching a class or lecturing a class, and I never will. I've never tried to make my uh, work on my skills every day. You know, I'll draw every day or I'll write every day, and it's just, you know, I may not, I may not eat good food that day, but I'm sure as hell going to try to work on my skills. I try to approach. I try to approach everything I'm asked to do as honestly and sincerely and as artistically as I can. I've not always succeeded in producing art, sometimes through failures of my own. Uh, and, it, you know, I didn't dig deep enough, uh, often because of the systems I'm working in. Um, but I don't think you have to succeed at creating art every day to be an artist. I think you have to approach your craft and your life every day as an artist which is innately humble. It can't be about you and art at the same time. You have to get out of the way. The, the cartoon image of the artist as egotist is childish. That's, that's people using the word artist to excuse their behavior. True artists, the true artists I've always met are always the humblest, kindest, and they're, they're the people, they're the most open to everything, to new knowledge, to learning, to critique, to criticism. Um, and it's a terribly hard way to live because you never really feel good about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> You're always like, I'm failing to do it again today, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, a, and a lot of people, even people who start out with the best of intentions, end up just wanting to do a craft that they do well, that they can get either money for or praise for over and over again and call themselves an artist. Um, and if you're doing that, you're, you're the antithesis of art. You know, you, you, you need to be growing and changing and challenging and, and working every day. And it can't be about what's in it for you or gratifying your ego. It can't be. Uh, it can sometimes make you very stubborn, but it, uh, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily make you feel like you're uh, a hero and you shouldn't be because you know, you're not, you're just a link in a chain without a lot of time. Hmm. Mike Disa, it has been my pleasure and honor to have this conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you for all your hard work. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you and your hard work. <laughs> you are awesome. And I'm excited for all of this crazy to be lifted so that 
I can sit down with you and see Bob again and to have a cocktail and just be like, yes, human contact. I know, but the longer it goes, the more more good work I get done. It's just weird things. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of work for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of artists during the lockdown and, you know, the the ones who are like, I'm like, hey, I think this person, you know, you kind of like, yeah, I think you're an artist. A lot of the most comments like I'm getting a, so much done. I'm getting like huge amounts of work done and art done. And the other ones are like, oh, I'm bored and watching a little Netflix. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Everybody deals with the pandemic in their own special way. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, that's fine, but it's, it's like if you're an artist and you're bored, how does that work? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was a little girl. Whenever I was, whenever I announced to my mother when I was a little girl that I was bored, she would always say the same thing. To to it would make me so mad she would always say only a bore is bored you know she's not wrong i know <laughs> but still made me mad she's not wrong i'm like i'm an artist with too much time on my hands really yeah <laughs> is that possible <laughs> mike thank you have a wonderful afternoon thank you for your time and your stories and so interesting and lovely and i'm excited for people to hear this Oh, well, I appreciate it very much. I'm sure one or two will sit through the whole thing. But I love your podcast, and I, I love the fact that you do this. And, you know, I'm available whenever you and whatever. And it means is, this is a great podcast, and I'm so glad you get to sit there and reach out to the world the way you do. I think it's just magnificent. It's, it's, it's basically the definition of an artist. Thank you. Have a lovely day. You too. All right. Bye. I'll see you soon, I hope. You will. Yeah. Just call me soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.